Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Our first chance to drive in a run. Line to third. Rojas is there. That saved the run. There's one more. Backhanded by Walker. And once again, Merrill Kelly strands a Cardinal base runner. Andrew Chafin gets the strikeout. Diamondbacks get the win. And Arizona takes the series opener by a final score of 6-3. to three. Is it Groundhog Day around here? I feel like every day we're coming on the radio and we're talking about the same things. Well, that looks Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Spring has already sprung, man. Groundhog Day was like a month ago. Well, could somebody tell the Cardinals that? Because they didn't seem to get the memo, and it feels like every night we're watching the same story. Now, the difference last night is they didn't have a lot of opportunities with the runners in scoring position. Typically, it's Oh, man, 10 opportunities. You were only able to drive in one run because you only got one hit with those situations. Last night, you're one for five in those spots. You finish the game with three runs. I know there's pitching questions, and we'll get to all of that. But again, I want to focus on the offense because that is the way that this team is constructed. Alex, I went through before the show today to figure out how the Cardinals have performed with the runners in scoring position, not in all of their games, but in their losses, there's 10 of them this season. So it was a long process for Looks me. Looks like we're cherry picking again. The Cardinals are 15 for 84 with runners in scoring position. That's a 179 batting average in their 10 losses this season. Hot damn. In those 10 games, they have left 76 runners on base. Now you're going to leave guys on base. That's going to happen. 76 in 10 games is not what you want to happen. Here are the number of runs that the Cardinals have scored in their losses this year. Four, one, two, zero, one, four, zero, three, three, three. Where's the nine against Toronto? That one sounds like their last nine losses, sorry. Cherry picking. Damn. Yeah, I removed one. <laughs> one loss trying, from the equation. 90% on the same page. of the others are the... Th- that nine, that was the outlier. Just try and get on the same page as us, man. The Cardinals' offense is the problem right now. Their pitching has some issues, but it's mostly stabilized. Until this offense gets back on track, they're not going to be the team that we wanted them to be. And right now, that's the issue. They're not hitting enough, man. And I, I can't explain why that is. The numbers, the batting average overall, pretty good. Slugging percentage overall, he'd like it to be a little better. I think it will be, but it's pretty good. OPS, pretty good. Everything about this offense, until you get into the critical situations, looks pretty darn good. 
And then you get into those spots and they just fail over and over and over again. And I'm getting sick of watching it. I think it's going to get corrected, but that doesn't make it any less frustrating 17 games in watching the same thing happening over and over again. Yeah, I mean, the amount of numbers in the LOB column at the end of the game is starting to just get infuriating. And for those that don't know advanced analytics, LOB is left on base. Just making sure we're all on the same page with that. But it's it's the batting average in that area. It's the strikeouts in that area. They they're tied for second in Major League Baseball in strikeouts with runners in scoring position at 46. The only team above them, Kansas City Royals, and well, they're not a good team. Not yet. Not. Well, I don't know if they ever will be. But it, it is infuriating, and I do seem to go into every Cardinals game as soon as one run is scored against them thinking, well, they're not coming back in this. Which is weird, because in the first week of the season, we're like, ha, ha, ha. Nobody can stop them. You know they're getting back into it. And and the later the game goes, like a one nothing deficit early in the game last night, you're thinking, all right, it's early. But then the longer that game goes, you're thinking, "Uh, what's going to happen here? And the dagger of that moment was the Grand Slam. And maybe it wasn't a dagger prior to that, but the home run, the double, the grand slam, it felt like, yep, just gave up in that area. And that's the problem with this Cardinals team right now. And yeah, you can get better than this because you, you've got to have that breakthrough moment. The issue for the Cardinals team now is, though, they've had breakthrough moments. The Rocky series, they had one of those. The walk-off win that they had against the Pirates, and they're still not finding ways to climb out of this on a consistent level. It's not about what you do in one game. It's about what you do in three, four, five consecutive games. Yeah, for a team that is a offensive identity first, this offense is going to have to start hitting. And I, again, I think it will still. I think they're still going to turn this around. But, man, I... For an offensive identity team, I was at the ballpark last night. When that first run scored in the top of the first inning, it just felt like the game was over. The the crowd didn't have any energy in the top of the first inning already. Like, that shouldn't happen on a team that has a good offense, but we've seen what's been happening with the runners on base. They've really been struggling. Even when they tied the game, I still felt like there was a lot of buzz around the ballpark of, man, I think this offense isn't going to be able to do much more. So I I think they're going to turn it around. I really do. But, man, they've just got to start hitting. And to Alex's point, it feels like they have that takeoff moment. But then they just get grounded right again, right after the Arnado double. Okay, that's the big moment. That's the point this offense needs. Here we go. And then it's the next game to go out and they score one run. They have the walk-off win uh, two days ago. You think that's the moment that, okay, now this offense is really going to get going. And then they go out there. And look, Merrill Kelly pitched a really good game. You should still put up more than one run and look even more competitive than what they did last night. This offense just right now feels kind of loss in my opinion which feels weird to say because all the numbers seem to be pointing in the direction of hey they should be really good correct me if i'm wrong the diamondbacks with the exception of andrew chafin have issues in their bullpen like that's an area of of struggle for them at least this season and to get only i don't judge anybody on the bullpen. no i know first but what i'm saying is to only get five guys in scoring position against a diamondbacks team like yeah even though it was merrill kelly We talked about how you dominated the Toronto Blue Jays at the beginning of the season, but then against a bullpen where, yeah, it's early in the season and you don't judge them that early, but it's a bullpen that's struggling. If a team doesn't get more than five runners in scoring position against the Cardinals pitching staff, they're probably asking what the hell happened to us. Yeah. uh, Last night was one of the rare opportunity or rare games this season where I've said the offense didn't just like fail with runners in scoring position. The offense last night failed. Just wasn't good enough. And until that changes, we're going to continue having these same conversations because this team is constructed 
to win based on its offense. Somebody on the text line, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. BK, can you guys please get Eno Saris or Mike Petriello on soon to tell us that the Cardinals are hitting the ball hard. This is small sample size. It's the early season. Everything's going to be okay. Please make us feel better about what we're watching. I tried for Mike. Yeah, he said no. He said, huh? Haven't watched the Cardinals much. Yeah, understandably so. Um, I don't need them to come on, though. I can tell you what's going on here. If you want to feel better about it, like there are plenty of numbers to make you feel better about it. And I'm not just like pulling at grasping at straws here. You can go look them up yourself. Go to Baseball Savant and look for the red numbers. Those are the good ones. Look for the blue numbers. Those are the bad ones. Most of the Cardinals offensive numbers are red right now, which is good. Cardinals are ninth in hard hit rate. They're sixth in average exit velocity, which means they're hitting the ball hard consistently. That's what you want to do as an offense. They're making loud outs, basically. They're fourth in expected batting average. That's obviously excellent. Now, the actual batting average is a little bit lower than that, but the batting average for them has not been a problem. They're 10th in a, a random um, advanced number called x Bacon, which basically means they're making really good contact, like to simplify it for you guys. Whoa. The Cardinals' offensive numbers are okay, and then they get into clutch situations and they pee down their leg. I don't think that's going to be a characteristic of this team for 162. I don't. But I keep saying that and the results aren't changing. And so it's really hard for me to convince you that something's going to change until we actually watch it implemented on the field. We did talk about these same things last year, early on in the season, and it did eventually get corrected. Some of that was personnel. A lot of it was just guys clicking into place. I think that's going to happen again this year. I think this offense is going to finish top five in Major League Baseball. But it's hard for me to convince you of that right now when what we're watching on a night in, night out basis is not good enough. And I'm not trying to tell you that it has been. It hasn't. I'm not excusing what's happened. I'm explaining it and trying to project forward what that means for the rest of this season. The problem is when we get to the point when they actually start hitting and don't, quote, pee down their leg, because I think that's a perfect way to phrase it, is... You've get you've gotten out of it, but how much can you actually believe in it? Because we've seen it now for an extended stretch in the start of the season. And once again, this goes to the expectation from Cardinals fans in the postseason. And I know you can't do anything about that until you get there and actually perform. But that's been the narrative of this team over the last few seasons in the playoffs is, well, they, they can't handle this big of a stage. And if now you already can't handle it in the regular season, and what's going to happen as you go deeper into the season and yeah, you figure it out. But as soon as it sneaks up on you, then you go back to the area of, oh man, this is what's going to happen again, isn't it? So earlier today, I was listening to the morning show because they do an excellent job. And they were talking about the Cardinals struggles early on in the season. And Randy, I, I'm, I got to say, guys, I'm a little surprised by how calm Randy is. He's been calm, cool and collected as if he was a numbers nerd. And we all know that's not the case. But Randy's been super I'm starting to comfortable with where the Cardinals are at. Not because he feels great about them being 7-10 and 10 on the season, but because he's projecting forward and said, hey, this is going to be all right. Here's what he had to say earlier today about the Cardinals as a first-half team versus them in the second half. Since 2016, the Cardinals have a record of 275 and 267 before All-Star breaks. After All-Star breaks... 256 and 174. That's a 507 winning percentage before the break, 595 after. And it's consistent. It's year after year. And the Cardinals know what they're doing. That's my point here is that while we are bothered by it, the the Cardinals know that they're going to be good after the All-Star break. That's just how they roll. So 
I, I actually agree with him. I do think that the Cardinals, the way that they operate as an organization is in the first half of the season, especially the first like six to eight weeks of the season. They try to figure out what they've got. Who what do we have here? What can Alec Burleson be for us at the big league level? Is he a legit left-handed bat for us, either off of the bench or as a starting outfielder every day? What does our bullpen look like? Who are the guys that we can trust in key high leverage situations? Remember this time last year, this is when we started to learn like, oh, Ryan Helsley, for real. He's a dominant closer for the Cardinals now. Um, at the same time, we learned, okay, Giovanni Gallegos has is showing some cracks compared to what we saw previously. So those guys fit into their roles eventually. Andre Palante, we were just learning, oh, reverse splits guy, you can use him in basically any situation. So they're trying to learn what they have, and then that informs their decisions the rest of the season. It makes sense why they're a second-half team, because they have so much talent that's coming up from the minor league level. That's who they are as an organization. The problem is, what that's gotten them over the last five years is either the third seed or a wild card spot. And this year, to get to 90 wins, you got to go 83 and 62 the rest of the way. That's already what he's talking about. We said all offseason, the goal this season should be getting a top two seed to avoid the wild card round. It becomes incredibly difficult to accomplish that goal if you start out as slow as the Cardinals have. Now, they can still do it. It can't happen right now. But if they continue on the 500 path, their 507 win percentage team over the last five years in the first half of the season, as Randy mentioned, if you continue doing that, you will not be able to get a top two seed by the end of the season. It will not happen this year. Well, if you're going to go off of history from 2016 up until last season, as Randy did, you only did it once, and it was 2019. Here's how those seasons went since 2016, where you were a, quote, second half team. Missed the playoffs, missed the playoffs, missed the playoffs, went to the NLDS and beat the Braves and then were swept by the Nationals, lost to the Padres in the wild card, lost to the Dodgers in the wild card, lost to the Phillies in the wild card. Yeah, notice the trend there, wild card. So, so I don't, uh, but even beyond that, like you can be a great second half team all you want, but y- I, I think I would much rather be a consistent team from start to finish than be a 500 team or less in the first half and then a awesome team in the second half because then everybody gets their hopes up but as i just mentioned then issues start to creep in once you get to the big stage and you don't you don't back up what you've done for a second portion of a season so i i typically would agree you have to have a really good start to the first half to be a team that's going to get in this top two which again i thought that was the biggest lesson to be learned from last year's wild card debacle was you need to be you need to be a team that earns that buy so you don't have to go through the randomness of baseball in a best of three series i i think this year though right now things are trending towards okay they might still be able to get into that category because looking at the standings look the braves and the mets are off to a great start 13 and 4 are the braves 11 and 6 are the mets and they're sitting atop in the east only the winner of that division is going to end up being a top two seed even if the Mets lose out by a game the division win 101 games they have to become a wild card team automatically and then I'm not saying that the Diamondbacks aren't going to make the playoffs but they're definitely not a team that's going to end up winning the West and end up being a top two seed the team that I think is going to do it and has the potential to do it is the Padres and they're basically at the same mark that you're at at eight and ten and the Cardinals sitting at seven and ten coming in today so I typically would agree with this scenario of hey if you want to be a top two team you really need to make sure you go on a you have to have a really good first half of the year. I, I don't think that's going to be the case for the Cardinals this year. I, I think they do have time to kind of get things figured out. And then now they have to figure it out before post all-star break. They've got to figure it out probably in June, mid June at best, or sorry, early June at best. Then they can still get a chance to go be a top two seat. So I, I'm not too concerned about that yet. 
because the, the way the Padres are playing, they're not playing like a top two team, and they're the other team that I think is the only one that has a shot at the top two seed. I'm concerned. I'm not freaking out, but if the goal this season, the aspiration was getting a top two seed in the National League, I'm getting nervous about that possibility. I still think this is a playoff team. I still think once they get there, they're going to have a chance to be able to go far if they've got the real version of Jack Flaherty uh, that we're all hoping to get. But, man, uh, the, the start to the season has been nothing like what any of us were anticipating. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. Jeremy Rutherford is going to join us coming up in about 15 minutes to start our preview of the Blues offseason. Also want to ask him what he saw last night from the start of the Stanley Cup playoffs, how that applies to what the Blues need to do this offseason to get back into that situation. We'll do all of that coming up in about 15 minutes. But next... Wilson Contreras is going to be a critical component to what we were just talking about, the Cardinals getting back on track. I think we saw the start of that yesterday here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Cardinals have a couple of twin killings. Runner goes. The throw to second right on the body. Big throw. Perdomo gunned down. And it's only the second Diamondbacks runner to be thrown out trying to steal this year. And that was absolute perfection. Swing, fly ball center. Thomas on the run. Still going, still going. That ball is off the base of the wall. Contreras on his way to second. What an at bat to tie this game. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Guys, Wilson Contreras is hitting his stride. You could feel that in the game last night. First with the caught stealing, then with the big double for the Cardinals. In his last seven games, this includes six starts. He is batting 261. That doesn't sound great, but he's getting on base 39% of the time. He's got an OPS of about 800 in that stretch. He's starting to get going offensively and defensively. Guys, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I think he's been a little better than expected. Now, game calling wise, like that is something that is so incredibly hard for us on the outside, I think, to evaluate that I I have a tough time even getting into that. If we hear stuff where maybe there's some questions internally about whether or not he's calling a great game. okay, sure, I'll go into that, but I, I don't feel like we're equipped to question that on the outside looking in. Framing, I think he's been mostly fine this year. I haven't noticed any like, clear issues with that necessarily and throwing guys out. He's now tied for the lead in major league baseball with five runners thrown out at second so far this year. I think he's been pretty damn good defensively. Wilson Contreras, you can feel the energy that he gives to this team and you can see what kind of a boost he can be offensively whenever this guy gets going. I think we had that before the season started with a better forget it, how many guys could win a gold glove this year. And I was the only one that said maybe Wilson Contreras. And I don't know if that's going to get it done solely just throwing guys out. There's more that goes into it, but too many good defensive catchers. I mean, I'm, I'm with you though, man, if you lead the league in throwing guys out in, t- in terms of attempting to steal bases and you uh, find ways to save to wild pitches that could result in more runs, you're more and more discussing Wilson Contreras on the defensive side, which is why I was so surprised by how many people were like, yeah, he doesn't really bode well on the defensive side. I never really thought he was a liability with Chicago, maybe on the framing side of things, but I I don't really care as much about that as I do somebody who's not a liability behind the plate in terms of making sure they can save those wild pitches like Yachty was so good at and then throwing guys out when they attempt to steal. I always felt like Contreras had that ability. And then you get to the offensive side of it. As much as people were panicking about him saying, I need to start hitting. 
I, I looked at that the same way I looked at Nolan Arenado when he came to Bush Stadium and were the Cardinals his first season. It's like there is so much pressure on a Nolan Arenado being traded to St. Louis when he was coming from Colorado and outspoken about wanting to be in the playoffs that you have to back it up. Wilson Contreras is... Uh, he idolizes Yadier Molina, and now you're filling the shoes of Yadier Molina. There's a lot more that goes into that, so I figured the offense was going to come, and now you're starting to see how impactful of a player he truly is for this team. Yeah, I, I think defensively he has been better than what was advertised. Now, we always knew he had a really good cannon of an arm, and he's really showcased that. And I, I thought his pop time in that one last night was really good because I didn't think Jack Flaherty was very quick to deliver that pitch, and he was still able to get the runner out at second base and to is to your guys point on the framing right now sitting at the 60 in 61 61st percentile last year for example was in the 25th percentile okay. so his framing has average. has been better and that was something that i think the Cardinals wanted him to work on uh, in spring training because that was a big thing talking about him improving his defense but, but on the offensive side last night he looked more calm at the plate to me just seeing him in person and, and he was hitting the ball hard driving it the other way with authority I do think he's getting close to having that breakout moment. My only concern is because when you look at the underlying metrics, there's a lot of red on his baseball savant page. I mean, hell, he's 98th in max exit velocity percentile-wise. My fear, though, is I don't know if he can break out if he's not pulling the ball. And this has been a theme for him all season long. He's just not pulling the baseball. And both hits yesterday were going the other way. Now, one of them was driving in the gap the other way, so that that's probably a sign that he's getting close. But the first double was just the other way completely. I mean, when you look at his pull percentage right now, it's at 26%. Typically, he's around 35 to 37% in his career. I, I think that's going to change, but I don't know if he's going to be able to turn this around without being able to pull the baseball. And that's the one sign when I start to see that, when he starts pulling the ball and starts getting hits, then I know we're going to see Wilson Contreras of old, and that's when his bat's really going to come to play. So I guess the question that I would have is, like, are you concerned that Wilson Contreras won't pull the ball? Because I'm not. Like, zero I'm not overly concerned, concerned but I, I don't think I can say he's on the verge of breaking out until I start to see him pull the ball. So that's what I was trying to get to. I probably said that poorly. I Until he starts pulling the ball and hitting the ball with authority, which he's hitting the ball for authority now, but he's just going the other way. When he starts pulling the ball, that's when I think you're really going to see Wilson Contreras take off. And I feel like that's a timing thing. Once he gets his yeah. timing down, he, I, I think it's going to click into place, and we're going to see, like, oh, that's what it's like to have a catcher that can be an actual asset at the plate. Like Behind the plate, he's fine. When he's at the plate as a hitter, you feel really good about it. And that's something this team, listen, I, I know everybody loves Yachty. You should love Yachty. The guy was the heart and soul of the Cardinals for damn near 20 years. But at the plate over the last four years, probably, he was obviously a liability. And when he wanted to be batting towards the middle of the order, and he did make a lot of contact, so to a degree you understood it, he was good with runners in scoring position, that, that, that was something that hurt this team at times when he was at the plate. Now you got Wilson Contreras who can be an asset in that regard. So um, it's been fun to watch him uh, start to find his way with this team. And now I, I, I do feel like he's getting close. I think he's getting close to going on a two-week stretch where you're like, whoa, that guy could carry your offense. Um, and that is something we have not seen behind the plate in a while. Coming up next, we'll talk to Jeremy Rutherford, Blues insider for The Athletic. Want to get his thoughts on what he heard from Doug Armstrong over the weekend, what he took away from those conversations with Army and the players. And when he was watching the Stanley Cup playoffs last night, what did he see from those teams that remain that he didn't see from the Blues? We'll talk to JR about it next year on 101 ESPN. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It's time for the Rutherford Report on 101 ESPN. Anything you folks want to know about the fascinating world of pro hockey, here we go. He's Alex Ferrario, that's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie going out to the 101 ESPN hotline to be joined by our friend, the Blues Insider for The Athletic. He is the one and only Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on the show. Jeremy, we appreciate the time, man. How are you doing today? Good, guys. How you guys doing? Uh, doing all right. So you had a very busy weekend with all the exit interviews for the Blues. I'm going to ask you a big picture question here, JR, to start things off. What was your yep. biggest takeaway from those conversations with the players, Baruby and Doug Armstrong? That they weren't a team. And I think we all knew that. We talked about it. We wrote about it. Uh, but listening to uh, Doug Armstrong, Craig Baruby, and uh, several of the players, especially Justin Falk and Braden Shen, this just wasn't a team, and I think that uh, the one thing you touch on early on in the year is that a couple young guys got paid, and this is not to put the onus on Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas, but I think uh, we all know that there were some issues within the locker room about young guys getting paid maybe before uh, at least one of them, Jordan Cairo, who wasn't on that Stanley Cup team, paid his dues. And I think with the play early on from Cairo, that became an issue, and I think uh, Craig Bruby touched on it. That Winnipeg game was a tough game for the team. They didn't go out and try to win the game in the third period. And then, of course, the eight-game losing streak followed after that. And then everything just kind of fell apart. So, uh, to me, you look back at everything everybody said, and they confirmed, they acknowledged, they underlined that they were not a team last year. Jared, with that being said, I mean, you've been covering this Blues team since the mid-2000s. And, I mean, you go back, and it was the Chris Prongers and the Al McKennesses and then the Keith Kachucks and then the David Backus and the Barrett Jackmans and the Steens and the Petros. And now you've got a locker room that still has some of those guys like Braden Shen and Colton Pareko. But this seems a lot more difficult to get the quote-unquote culture back than just saying we got to be better. Yeah, it is tough. Thanks for reminding me how many players I covered over the uh, years. You've had a lot but, of them, Jr. Even Peter Chianic. <laughs> oh my goodness, number twenty-six. There so it was. it was a uh, it was a situation I think where maybe the past ten years the Blues have had a lot of this success. Alex, uh, some of the names that you mentioned there, some of the ones you didn't, you know, veteran guys that carried that culture from the Barrett Jackmans and the Alexander Steens, and I think it just uh, it, it went on year after year. I think this year, and it's easy to say because the team didn't make the playoffs, and now we're talking about them not being a, a team within the locker room. I think it's easy to say this, uh, but it's just not picked up on 
by some of the players on the team. And if you look at this group, you're leaning on those guys. Like the young guys that we're talking about, have they picked up on it yet? These are the guys who you need to score 35, 40 goals. And so it's one thing if they're third and fourth liners and they're playing underneath the Braden Chens and the Ryan O'Reilly's and, and those guys, okay, well, we're going to drag them along and eventually they're going to get it. Well, in this situation, you, you, like I said, you're counting on these guys. And so, you know, some of the issues that cropped up throughout the year or whether it's stuff that Doug Armstrong talked about with, you know, he thinks they uh, are more concerned with how their Instagram looks than how they performed in the game. You know, I think those things become issues. So uh, that's my answer to your question is the last 10 years or so, all that success, those older guys who understood the culture were the guys in the key positions. And now that's flip-flopped a little bit. Jeremy Rutherford is our guest here on 101 ESPN. JR, I asked this question of Doug Armstrong when we talked with him yesterday. And for anybody that missed the conversation, I thought I thought it was an interesting one. Uh, you can check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com. The free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. I said, is it fair to describe the, the next era of Blues hockey as it's going to come down to whether or not Jordan Cairo and Robert Thomas take the step that they're counting upon from those two players? He pushed back a little bit and basically said, like, hey, we've always been a sum of our parts type of a team. And I think that's fair to say. But when you're paying those guys a combined sixteen and a half million dollars, you need more than what we saw from them this past year. And those contracts officially kick in this upcoming season. How would you describe the importance of those two players, both on the ice and off the ice, taking that next step for them in 2023 and beyond? Yeah, BK, first of all, great interview by you guys. Uh, I was taking notes. I text Army afterwards. I told him good interview, and <laughs> I said thanks. So uh, i got to learn how to ask better questions, and uh, so I got it from you guys. BK so, will help you um, out, JR. He's yeah, we'll, the best we'll show you what to do here, JR. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for the help. Uh, no, I understand where Army's been coming doing from. this for 25 <laughs> years. He's taking notes from us. Get out of here. <laughs> I understand where Army's coming from, where he says that uh, they've always been uh, some of their parts. But, 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 but there haven't always been two guys like these young guys paid $8 million a year next year. And, you know, there have been, you know, whether you have uh, Bacchus or you have Shen or you have O'Reilly, you have all these guys making six, six, five, seven. I think it's fair to say that uh, when you're in that kind of situation. Well, now it's different. Now the cap hasn't gone up. Now you've uh, allotted a large portion of your salary cap to these young guys. And sure, they can perform well, and Cairo can score you 37 goals, but it's the personality, it's the attitude, it's the work ethic. Like, that's what everybody talked about in these exit interviews that wasn't there. And if your top players don't have it, it's just not going to drip down to the rest of your team. And I think there's going to be a lot of guys on your team who are resentful uh, that maybe some of these players got paid and they're not putting in the time, they're not putting in the work. And, and I'm not saying that's the case with both these guys. I'm just trying to paint the picture of what could be the situation if you have your uh, team built around these two guys. And I think that's what the situation is right now. So I understand what Army's saying about uh, they've always been built that way. But to me, when I look at it, this is a different dynamic than we've seen the last 10 years. On that topic, JR, I, I've gotten this question so many times throughout this season, and I'm just going to ask it to you bluntly. Do you feel like this team can take the step towards being competitive in the playoffs with a Jordan Cairo on the roster? I think they can. I've seen a lot of young players. I mean, you look at Tarasenko when he was young, and, and you know he needed to mature. I remember covering a David Braun when he was young. And he needed to mature. And I think that's the situation with Kyrie. Nobody can sit here and guarantee that he's going to get there and he's going to get to that point. Uh, and who knows if he does, uh, does it happen next year? Does it happen in, in three years? I think if you had to sit down 
and write down a list of the top five things that have to happen this year for the Blues to be able to move forward and take that next step. You know, write write down all you want that they need to trade a defenseman. Write down all you want that the special teams need to be better. My number one thing, and I'm going to touch on it in an article tomorrow in The Athletic, is Jordan Kyrou has to get it. He's just got to get it. So I don't know if that's going home and sitting on a lake and, and fishing and realizing, hey, a lot of these people are saying this about me that I need to, you know, respond this way. You know, he doesn't have to listen to everybody and listen to the outside world. He's got to take it upon himself. But at some point, it has to come from within him that he's going to be the player that puts in the work and he's a good teammate and he's part of this thing moving forward if he's going to become that player. He can be that guy who scores 40, 50 goals, 100 points, you know, ESPN every night, Instagram, everything, all that stuff. But he's got to realize the situation that's in front of him, and I don't think he's done that yet. You know, I'm glad you said that, Jer, because Amelie Benjamin of NHL.com had a really good piece talking about Vince Dunn, and, you know, she talked with him one-on-one, and Dunn told her that I had some things happen in my life in the offseason that I spent that offseason thinking about, man, I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing right now. Now, different scenario, because Vince Dunn's having a career year going into a contract conversation with where he's an RFA, and Cairo, of course, has gotten paid, but the amount of people I've seen that have said, well, go get a Ryan O'Reilly and bring him back because that's the leader that you could put in. Or go get a Jonathan Taves. He's a leader that you could put in the locker room to get Jordan Kyrou's head on straight. I don't believe bringing in somebody from the outside is going to make Jordan Kyrou that type of player. It's going to be more on Jordan Kyrou figuring out how to be that type of player. I've got all the respect in the world for Ryan O'Reilly and those other names, obviously, that you mentioned, too, Taves, whoever. Uh, Ryan O'Reilly, with all due respect to him, was on this roster this year and couldn't get through to him. And and so, you know, when you when you bring up a Vince Dunn, yeah, I covered Vince Dunn. We both did, and he was here, and he went through some of similar things. Obviously, different position. You know, he's not counted on to score thirty five goals, but he lacks some maturity too. And look, what is he now? So twenty five, twenty six years old. So it took him a couple years. And I think you know, possibility, as I said a second ago, that Jordan Cairo can get there, but. You know, it, it all goes back to him, like you said there at the end. You know, O'Reilly sitting in the room with him, he can talk to him all he want. And O'Reilly's had a, a great uh, impact on a lot of people. You know, Pat Maroon was struggling, struggling, was getting ready to get waived by the St. Louis Blues. Ryan O'Reilly and his dad, Brian O'Reilly, were talking to Pat Maroon a lot, and they helped him out. But it came from within Pat to say, I'm going to block out all this stuff, and I'm just going to work hard, and I'm going to be better. And now he's sitting here with three cups. So it is possible. But if we talk about Jordan Kyrou becoming a success story, it's not because he's had Ryan O'Reilly or somebody in his ear. It's because he realized that I can be a star in this league if I listen to my coaches, listen to my GM, and and just kind of put all this together. JR, final question that I've got for you, and thanks so much for the time as always today. Uh, We appreciate it. People can find that column, by the way, that you're writing over on The Athletic, at The Athletic, or they can follow you on Twitter, at JP Rutherford. JR mentioned that 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 piece is going to be out tomorrow. As I was watching the games last night, all I could think about was, man, specifically the Western Conference ones, Wild Stars and then Kings Oilers. I don't know how much more talented these teams are than the Blues. And I know that sounds weird to say, but as I was watching especially the Wild versus the Stars, I think the Blues are more talented than either of those two teams that are still playing from the Central Division. The problem is those teams play with some desperation, like the, the way that they play, the defensive minded forwards that they have, it looked different than anything that I've seen from the Blues all year. And it reminded me of watching the Blues in previous seasons where it was that full like 
the sum is greater than the parts. And the question that I wanted to ask you with this, as you watched last night, if you were able to watch much of it, or if you just watch any of the other teams around the league that are legitimate contenders right now, what do you see from them that is missing from the Blues right now? Yeah, I think you know, I think the Blues have talent. Uh, obviously, they've got some different pieces they probably need to move around to put themselves talent-wise, I think, on, on the same page as, as some of these teams that we watched last night. You know, so I want to say this, that, you know, what we watched last night, it's just amazing. I mean, I love watching playoff hockey, and that was just a terrific sacrifice. That's, that's the thing, the team, the sacrifice. What are the Blues missing? You know, they've got the talent. I'm transcribing a Craig Bruby interview from that exit interview the other day. And, and so I think when you hear him say it live in the room, it's one thing, but then you type it into your computer a couple of days later and, and you kind of hear these things again. And he was just saying on my tape recorder here, he's saying, we've got to have the want defensively. It's not going down and making a turnover. Let's just use Cairo as an example. You know, Connor McDavid goes down and makes turnovers, but how bad do you want to turn around and get back and help out your teammate or whether it be jump in front of a shot and help that teammate? That's what we saw last night. So yeah, maybe those teams aren't that much more talented than the blues, but we saw players last night who were willing to sacrifice. Of course, you're going to see that in playoff hockey. It's different than a blues team down the stretch. That's out of the playoffs. We're not comparing those two situations, but the blues don't have that right now. And are they going to get it this summer? Are they going to bring it into camp next year? That's the big question. Is this team going to become a team? Cause we, we didn't see it. And I think that's the biggest thing that they're missing right now. Really good stuff. JR. Appreciate the time as always, man. We'll talk with you again next week. Enjoy yourself watching this playoff hockey last night was unbelievably entertaining and I'm exhausted from watching it up until like 2 AM. <laughs> we'll talk to you again soon, buddy. All right. See you boys. Thanks. You got it. That's Jeremy Rutherford joining us here on one one ESPN. Really looking forward to his piece. That'll be out tomorrow on the athletic. If you don't already subscribe, get your subscription now so you can get in there and read that tomorrow morning at JP Rutherford is where you can find him on Twitter. Alex, as I was thinking about Jordan Cairo, I, I, it's it's almost hard to discuss because it's one of those things where like you don't want to be too hard on anybody, but I think Jr's right. This is going to come down to him. You can't have somebody else talk to him about whether or not like you get it, because until you internalize something, it doesn't matter. I, I'm going to use myself as an example on this. I'm not trying to compare myself to Jordan Cairo, but just. The reason why I'm doing this is because I, I think there's a moment for all of us where it clicks in of like, I get it. Okay, my priorities were not in line. My entire life, I was a careerist up until I was like probably 26 years old. It happened a few years ago. So in 2019, I take a job in Kansas City because my entire life, my job, my dream was I want to host mornings or afternoon drive in Kansas City. Since I was 15 years old, it's the only thing that I can remember wanting to do. And everything since that was how do I become that? So when I was here the first time, everything that I was doing was driven towards how do I become a host in Kansas City? Um, I did a podcast that was on Kansas City sports. It's ridiculous. Why are you doing that while you're in Kansas City, right? Or I'd in, like in tape Louis, of that right? if that's possible. So the reason I bring this up is because when I was in Kansas City, I wasn't happy. And I realized in that moment, I have my dream job. I was offered an opportunity to host middays in Kansas City, and I declined. And the reason why is because I wanted to be here with my now wife. And it had to click for me where I was like, okay, I've got everything that I've always wanted and I'm not happy. Why is that? What's missing for me? And for me, it was being with the person that I care the most about in this life. That is what clicked for me was I need to be here. This is where my stuff is that matters to me. Winning or getting the, the dream job doesn't matter if I can't celebrate it with the person that I love. For Jordan Cairo, I don't know what that thing is. 
I don't know if it's missing the playoffs and not being able to be a part of the postseason for really the first time in like a regular season for him since he's been with the Blues. Maybe it's getting criticized the way that he did this year for the first time in his entire life. I don't know what's going to click into what's going to do it for him. Everybody's got that moment in their life where something changes and you say, "Okay, I need to realign my priorities. I don't know when that's going to happen for Cairo or if it's going to happen for Cairo, but that's what he needs. That is what has to lock into place for him to be the player that the Blues need. And if it happens for him, that's the kind of thing that can shift their trajectory completely. But until it does, I think JR's right. They're going to be wanting more from him until he gets to that place in his life. I mean, there's two paths that you can go down this direction. We all know that Jordan Cairo has immense talent. And yeah, he's got his contract and his money right now. And and we had a text on the Air Comfort Service text line uh, that said, you know... I'm sick of people just bashing on Jordan Cairo. The entire team was bad. I understand that, and I completely agree. It's not just on Cairo, but the issues are the the moments for Cairo were so glaringly large that you weren't talking about other plays by other players. But the two paths that Jordan Cairo can go, I'm watching last night the Dallas Stars and Minnesota Wild play. Jason Robertson is this guy. Jason Robertson is not a defensive-minded player. Jason Robertson is the dude that nearly, I think he scored 50 goals this season, or he was close to it. You could be a Jason Robertson who I watched back check when he turned the puck over. I watched him play as a unit. Jason Robertson is going to be the future captain of the Dallas Stars or one of the alternate captains. He's going to be there for a long time. Or you could be a Phil Kessel. Phil Kessel, great player, championship player. But you know what Phil Kessel's problem was? He went from Arizona. He was in Boston. He was in Toronto. He was in Vegas. He's been everywhere. Because they had to put him with great players to be successful. And Phil Kessel is now a third-line player who is not getting the ice time that a Phil Kessel five years ago was getting. So do you want to be a Jason Robertson? Do you want to be a Phil Kessel? And I'm telling you, go read this piece by Amelie Benjamin on NHL.com. I mean, it was spot on hearing Vince Dunn talk about the, the player he was or the player he is now. To who Jordan Cairo is going forward. That is going to be the major thing for him. And it's not going to be Braden Shen grabbing him by his collar and saying, we need you to play better, kid. It's going to be Jordan Cairo. And frankly, Robert Thomas is in the same conversation, recognizing the fact that this is your team now, even with a Braden Shen and a Colton Pareko, this is your team now. You might not have a C or an A on your jersey, but if you're not out there, giving it 110% every single night, then the rest of the team is not going to be showing up to the same level as you. What's the old Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. With great money comes great responsibility in sports. That's not what they said in Spider-Man. That's the reality of this, because I saw somebody on the text line say, guys, it's crazy that you're criticizing Kyra or Thomas like this. Those were two of the best best players on the team this year. That's why we're criticizing them is because the expectations are so remarkably high for those two players, because their talent allows them to do things that other players are incapable of doing. Yeah, from the 3-1-4, in all caps. Kairou led the team in points and goals. Yeah, and they're missing the playoffs right now. Kairou can be David Posternock. He has that kind of potential. He can be a superstar player on a championship-caliber team that scores 50-plus goals in a season. That is in his reach right now. And it becomes a question of, is he willing to do the things that are necessary to get there? And that is something we simply do not have the answer to right now. And it's hard to know, but it's why this next iteration of the Blues, 
like far be it for me to disagree with Army, but I do disagree a little bit with what he said yesterday where he said this is not about just Thomas and Cairo. I think it is. I think a large part of whatever this next era of Blues hockey will be defined by the steps that those two players take or their ability to replace them as the top two guys in the lineup. The, the One of those two things has to happen. Either those guys are second line players for you and you can still be a championship team with them staying as is or they take the next step, become those top line players and build you into the next championship core roster. Those are the two, two different, like that's the fork in the road moment that this team has to take questions and answers is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs tire and auto centers on one Oh one ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. It's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers. Brought to you by Insperity. Do HR issues have you boxed in? Expand your possibilities at Insperity.com. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. Guys, if you could be Ollie Marmel for a day, what lineup tweak would you make right now to try to get some devil magic going? If you could make one tweak to the Cardinals lineup, what would it be? Mm. I can I start? Yeah. I would put Lars Newbar batting leadoff, Nolan Gorman batting second, Alec Burleson batting sixth. That would be my lineup. You guys ready to get crazy with this? You gonna put moderate five? No, God no. Oh. I want to win. Lars yeah, Newbar leading off, Goldschmidt batting second, Contreras batting third. Sure. Nolan Arenado batting fourth, Alec Burleson batting fifth. Gorman six. Gorman sixth. I don't mind that. I don't either. Oh, I thought you guys were going to bash on me there. No, I kind of like and that. And then Brennan Donovan ninth. I don't think the Cardinals want to split up Goldie and Arenado. I think that's one of the, like, that is the keynote piece of the lineup right now. And it has been now for, what, 14 months, I guess, since I get, the start of last season, basically. I get it. But when you're in this problem, it's time to start looking at things differently. I hear you. As we learned last night, Contreras can only hit in the three hole. Um, Damn straight. Clearly. What's I, he done in the five hole this year? Nothing. I... So what I would like to do is I would like to bump Contreras down a spot oh, and put, um, and I know he had a good game yesterday, but it, it's it's not a permanent thing, just temporary to try and spark this offense. Are you punishing him I for would being hit, good? I would hit Gorman fifth. I, I think Gorman's your best hitter right now, and I want him coming up with runners on base. And what do you do at the two spot? I still like Alec Burleson at the two spot. I would understand if you wanted Burleson's to bump. been good, man. He, he is so underrated by fans right now. I, I would understand if you wanted to bump Newpar, whether it be to lead off, or the number two spot. But I, the way Burleson's playing, he's just playing so well that I don't want to take him out of that spot. So I, I would still go with the, what you have in your top four currently. Donovan, Burleson, Goldie, Arnato. I would just go Gorman five. I would go Contreras six. And then I would go with Newpar seven. Uh, from the three, one, four. Guys, does it feel like we are scapegoating Jordan Cairo for all of the issues that the Blues had last year? I, I want to follow up on our segment that we had in last, or our conversation that we just had in the last. I don't think Jordan Cairo is getting scapegoated, and I don't think that anybody should should suggest that he is the sole issue that this team has. I'm not even sure he's the biggest issue that the Blues have right now. But I do think that him having that, like, fork-in-the-road moment is really important for the trajectory of the Blues. They also need a shutdown center, in my opinion. After watching last night, that was one of my biggest takeaways. They also need to get this defense figured out. I don't think the defense has enough want-to right now either. Watching last night, Jacob Middleton, who is not as talented as a lot of the defensemen that you have right now here in St. Louis, 
was making big play after big play on the penalty kill for the Minnesota Wild. Where was that for the Blues this season, especially down the stretch? Didn't exist. So I, I think that the Blues have a lot of issues. The reason I hone in so much and why we hone in so much on the Jordan Cairo aspect of it is because you can't win a cup without a guy like that. The Blues don't win the cup in 2019 without Vladimir Tarasenko. For all the frustration that came along with it, that dude was dynamite in the playoffs, was always a big-time performer when the moments mattered the most. You know who came up with a bunch of goals for the Blues last year in the postseason? Jordan Cairo. He was a big-time performer for them last year. I know that it was frustrating to get there, but once he got there, him and David Perron were a big part of your offense. So you need him. You need Jordan Cairo to be the player that they think he's going to be, so that's why I talk about him so much. This is why, as much as we get excited about the potential of prospects like the Jake Neighbors and the Robert Thomases and the Kairos and potentially who they draft this year. None of it matters unless the player has the maturity to be successful. I mean, Connor McDavid, the best player in the game right now, when he was drafted, he put up 48 points in 45 games and missed the playoffs. The next year they made the playoffs and then the next two years they missed the playoffs. Like it took a few more years for Connor McDavid to figure it out. Nathan McKinnon was not the Nathan McKinnon we know right now when he was drafted by Colorado. Nathan McKinnon was more of a Jordan Cairo to where people were like, oh, kid's David great Perron. offense. Think yeah. about David Perron early in his career. There's, there's a maturity factor that goes into it, and sometimes players get it early. Sometimes players get it late. Sometimes players never get it. And that is why it is so difficult to project on a prospect. Somebody says you guys are treating Jordan Cairo and Tyler O'Neill the same. Yeah, because they're the same they're basically the same same issues, same frustrations, and same ceiling. The only- Tyler O'Neill can be the best one of the best players in all of baseball if he hits a ceiling. That's like we saw it two years ago. It's one of the best players in the sport. When he's not right though, it can put him in a situation where he's like your fifth best outfielder. That's Jordan Kyrou sometimes. There are some games where he looks like the best player in the NHL. He looks like he can play with anybody. Put him out there and anybody you want to put up against Jordan Kyrou, it's like, ah, it's at least a conversation because of his playmaking ability, because of his goal scoring ability. And there are other nights where it's like, man, this guy's like unplayable. So that's the gap between the best and the worst version of him. I think what the Blues would like is for that worst version to come up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep that best version and then keep the, it's really like the team this year. Raise the floor. Raise the floor yeah. of what you are as a player and that'll help raise the floor of who the Blues are as a team. The only difference between Tyler O'Neill and Jordan Cairo is Tyler O'Neill can be protected by other guys in the lineup and Jordan Cairo last season or this season averaged 18 minutes of, of time on ice and you want more time on ice for him because he's one of the best players but if he's a liability, then you're dropping his ice time down which is going to give you less of a chance to win. Coming up next, Jack Flair took center stage once again last night and Tanner Hendrickson could not be more in is Jack back baby I'm not sure we'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets Marines apart With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast. Presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
He did a phenomenal job today. He was pitching really well. He was efficient getting to that inning, um, commanding all his stuff. Uh, fastball was good. So, absolutely. Um, he did a terrific job today. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That was Ollie Marmel after the game last night talking about Jack Flaherty's performance. Guys, last couple of games have been super encouraging. If you're somebody that believes that Jack Flaherty can get back to his previous form, he's got about 11 and a third innings, nine hits, five earned runs, 10 strikeouts in those 11 innings, four walks. His command has been so much better than it was in his first couple of starts of the season. And again, last night, no yeah buts. This was against an Arizona Diamondbacks team that came into this thing swinging pretty good bats. And yesterday, I I would call yesterday an encouraging start for this reason. Because you're going up against a quality team, you gave your chance to win. You gave your team a chance to win. Six innings, four earned runs. A couple of those, I mean, they, they're really on Andre Pallante, but they end up getting credited to Jack Flaherty. Those first six innings were as good as we've seen Jack in two years. Since 2021, before he got hurt, he looked awesome. He was mowing guys down, and at a time, what was it, 10 straight batters that he was able to get out? He settled in quickly and looked good with command. He had the velocity up again. His slider looked good. He wasn't getting a ton of swing and miss, but nothing was hit particularly hard for for a stretch there. And then you get hit hard in that seventh inning, and we all know how it ends up. But I, I... I prefer to focus on the middle five innings than the first or the last one for him. I was encouraged. That being said, Tanner's going to take this to a degree that I am unwilling to go to. T-Bone was texting us saying some outlandish stuff about Jack Flaherty futures, trying to get a bet in on him winning the Cy Young this year. Yeah, mind like, you, whoa, let's, let's relax a little mind bit Mind you, there. he was in the upper section of Bush Stadium, probably six or seven beers deep when he was texting us this. No, no, no. T-Bone, is Jack back? Oh, Jack is effing back, boys. He, <laughs> he looked, he, I mean, he looked great last night. Seeing him pitch in person, and look, I know the swing and miss wasn't there for last night's game. I, I think that's going to change. I, I think that's one of those things where, just for whatever reason, Arizona put some good swings on. But again, they didn't hit the ball hard. I mean, the fastball command was there. The breaking ball looked awesome from the angle that I was sitting at. It, it looked like it had great movement to it. He was keeping guys off balance with it all night. I And the way that he settled in, too, felt like Jack Flaherty of old because I had just sat down when there was a double and a single and all of a sudden it was one nothing and I'm going oh boy this looks like Jack from the first mm-hmm. two starts but he did settle in he got 10 guys retired in a row as you said I, I thought he looked great I thought he looked like Jack Flaherty of old I, I'm ready to say that Jack Flaherty is back I, I was really impressed with his stuff last night and I know it got away from him in that seventh inning I, I think that's just one of those. I think he was starting to wear down. It's been two years since he's really been pitching into deep ending situations like that. I, I think he's back. I, everything I saw last night in person, just using my eye, the swing and miss stuff didn't seem to match up with what I saw. But I, I really liked what I saw from Jack Flair. The fastball command was there. The breaking ball looked great. I think he's going to be the guy. And not only did he look great, he was able to get to the seventh inning. I know he didn't finish the seventh inning, but we had a question I think it was before the Colorado start, or maybe right after the Colorado start. Can he just be like a Jacob DeGrom type pitcher where it's go five effective innings but be really good, or he get back to being the guy of old where he eats innings? Last night was an innings eater. Last night was an innings eater that was pitching efficiently. I, I am ready to declare that Jack Flaherty is back and is going to be the horse that the Cardinals have been looking for the last two years while he's been dealing with injuries. So he was an innings eater, but when he got to the sixth inning, he couldn't get anybody out and put the team in a bad spot. No, it was the seventh inning, so... 
And also, he's back, but the swing and miss stuff wasn't there. I, I thought, uh, for whatever reason, like I, I thought his stuff was better. I, I guess just they were taking more of the pitches. But I, I think the swing and miss will be there. I mean, I, I, I know he only ended up with, what was it, four whiffs last night? His uh, I stuff, like eight, right? I thought it was a lot. I thought it was lower than that. Like his stuff looked good from what I saw. I I think the swing and miss will come. I I I was more willing to say Jack is back after the Colorado Rockies game than this Diamondbacks game. Um, I've decided who Jack Flaherty is for me, and this might surprise people why I'm not more excited about him. Jack Flaherty is Jordan Bennington in my eyes. Jack Flaherty is a guy who, when he's on, has some of the best stuff, and it looks like it's he's unbeatable. But when one thing goes wrong, it unravels pretty quickly. And when it unravels, there's no there's no way for you to get out of it. Like last night, I, I looked at it. He gave up that home run, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is not good. Because when Jack – and he's talked about this before. When, when, when Sometimes temper gets the best of him, and it's hard to calm that down. And look, I would imagine that's for a lot of guys pitching that it gets away from you. But to be Jack is effing back, as Tanner likes to say – you got to find a way to stop that. And I know you were in the seventh inning, and I know that you were already at a high pitch count, and you were probably looking at getting out of that game there. But to be that guy, you got to find a way to stop that snowball effect. And that is the one thing that I'm just still unsure about with Jack. When he ended up, so you give up the home run to Marte to start out that inning, give up the double to Gurriel, and then you start out 2-0, against Walker in that moment his body language was terrible and I've seen some criticism we'll get to this in the one o'clock hour a little bit more I've seen some criticism of Ollie Marmel taking him out in that spot guys I knew at home Jack was walking that batter after he went down 2-0 against him I think Jack knew in that moment he was walking that batter because he was so frustrated he was going to get in his own way. He was hitting the eject button on that game. That's what he did. Now, he can tell you something else. He can tell you didn't want to come out of the game. He can tell you all these different things. We could all see it. We know what it looks like when Jack is right, and that was the middle five innings. And we know what it looks like when Jack is not right. And in that seventh inning yesterday, he looked like he did last year. He had that, I'm mad at the world because I'm not pitching well type of mentality. And so he was blaming the ref for a bad call. He was blaming Ollie for taking him out of the game. And then, and listen, like I think Jack, if he has some clarity in his mind and he's got the benefit of hindsight, I think Jack would look back on some of the stuff that he was doing after he left the game and say, yeah, I was pouting. I was pouting about the way that that seventh inning went for me. And like, we've all done it right in our own lives. I've done that. We're like, you're mad at something and you're mad at yourself and you're taking it out on everybody else. His reaction to that home run was not a good teammate moment, man. When Andre Pallante comes in that game, you think he's trying to give up a home run? Of course not. And for Jack to roll his eyes and put his head back and he's like, woe is me. That is why I'm not sure that I'm willing to say that Jack is back yet. Because that's the kind of thing that he's talked about early in the season that he's trying to eliminate from his games. That bad body language, those moments where he's like, I can't do anything right. All of this is going against me. The world is against me stuff. And last night we saw it return. It was just for the bit into the game. And I'm not like concerned about Jack moving forward. But until he removes that, 
it's hard for me to say that he's officially back, but I do feel pretty good about the Jack starts. Like I, I, I feel comfortable with him going out there and he's going to give you a quality start. So I, I don't disagree that he needs to get rid of that because I saw that I didn't, really, I couldn't really see the body language on the mound during the two zero count, but I did see it when he got taken out of the baseball game last night. So I'm not, I'm not saying like, yes, he needs to get rid of that. Uh, he does need to get rid of that. That does need to change for Jack Flaherty. But I felt like he had some of that even when he was right in like 2019, early parts of 2021. So I, though, yes, I do agree he needs to change that. I'm not going to use that as the reason why I'm going to say he's not back. Like I, I thought last night, and there was a text from the 314 saying, well, Tanner, you just because you haven't seen him beat himself in two years, that's the only reason that start last night looked better. No, to me, that looked a lot like what he looked like in 2019. Now, he didn't have the strikeouts to go along with it, but he was getting outs and he was mowing through that Arizona Diamondbacks lineup. So that's why I say he's back. I, I, I don't disagree with the body language thing, but I felt like he had some of that in 2019 when things would go wrong and in 2021. So I, I'm not holding that on him in terms of what I'm saying. Is an ace and Jack Flaherty back for the St. Louis Cardinals? I'm using a, what I see on the field when things are going right for him, and that's what I saw was old version of Jack Flaherty. Because, again, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. He does need to get rid of that because that's one of those moments as a teammate. It's like, well, dude, I'm not trying to F and do that. Of course I'm trying to get you out of there and get yeah. you with a win. So I don't disagree with that, but I, I don't use that as, okay, he's not back because his body language wasn't there. I, I think he's always kind of had that, and he had that when he was an ace in 19 and in the beginning portion of 2021. I'm not ready to put him in the ace category yet. I think I need a few more starts before I can get back to that level with him. But I am ready to put him in the same conversation that I have with Jordan Montgomery. Because when Jordan Montgomery takes the mound, I feel very good about the outing that we're going to see. I feel like Jack is back into the... I feel comfortable with him as a middle of the rotation, like two, three starter right now. I'm not ready for the ace conversation yet. And and guys, if Jack's a two or a three, that helps this team a lot. Because now you do have somebody that it's kind of like what Jose Quintana was for them last year. Like that allows you to put him up against some of the best starters and you've got a chance. You've got a fighting shot against them. Same thing is true for Jordan Montgomery. Same thing is true for Miles Michaelis. Now you're still missing a number one. You still need to go out there and get a guy that can start game one of the NLDS that can go up against Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, the best of the best. But at least you've got solid middle of the rotation guys. And it comes down to, can he take that next step? That next step is getting rid of the bad body language. That next step is in that seventh inning, finding a way through, battling through those situations. That next step is more swing and miss stuff for him. That might be in there, but that is still the thing that we need to see from Jack. And um, hey, man, we're what, four, four starts into his season. It's been encouraging. Every, Every start that he's had so far this year feels like it's taken a step from the last one. This one, I, I don't think this one was as good as a start against the Rockies personally, but it was a good one nonetheless. And if you're able to continue stacking these things on top of each other, you're feeling pretty good about where Jack's at. Coming up next, watching the playoffs last night, the Stanley Cup playoffs, it became increasingly clear what the Blues are missing. The hard part is finding a way to go about getting that guy. We'll tell you what that is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. I'm really sorry. I couldn't hold that coffin. I couldn't do it. I tried. I tried. I hit the cough button. It was, it was, it had to happen. All right. So watching this Stanley Cup playoffs last night, it became increasingly clear to me what the Blues are missing. One, grit. 
Mm, grit and grind. You got to have some of that once you get into the Stanley I'd Cup. Appreciate playoffs. you never grunt and say those two words ever again. Two a talented defense. Two. You got to have a shutdown center, man. I like Robert Thomas. I think he's a very good player. I love Pavel Buchnevich. You know, Alex, I, I'm a big fan of him. We're all big Bucci fans here. But I think in a best-case scenario going into next year and really long-term, Bucci is a winger for you. And so as I was watching the games last night, it became really hard for me to watch those and not say, man, I this doesn't look like Blues games. <laughs> like they, they just, the feel of it from start to finish, whether it was just the responsibility in their own zone, um, the forechecking, the ba- all of it. The desperation. It, it all felt a little bit different. And I feel like if you've got somebody that can take some of those responsibilities away from Robert Thomas, not because he can't handle them, but because it almost felt like he had a little bit too much on his plate this year. It was like, hey, become a leader. Become the number one center in terms of every situation for us. Um, can you please, oh, by the way, make sure that you're going to become an 80-plus point player for us. Oh, and you're going to be speaking to the media. Like, there was a lot. that. Oh, and you are got an $8 million a year yeah, contract. Say, well, expectations to a contract. are here. There was a lot that was thrown at Robert Thomas. If you can take some of that off of his plate next year, I do think that helps you. The hard part is finding the guy. The hard part is going to the free agent market or the trade market, being like, okay, this is the player that you can bring in to put in those situations, especially when it comes to the age range that they're going to be looking at. Doug Armstrong has made it clear he's not going to try to get a 35-year-old center to come in here and, and help you out for one year. He wants to build this thing for the long haul. So I don't think Jonathan Taves or Ryan O'Reilly or Jordan Stahl, Patrice Bergeron, I don't... I don't think those guys are realistic op- options for the for the Blues. However, somebody like JT Comfer, he might get overpaid in this market, but he is a very good defensive-minded center. I don't think he's a legit number one center, but I think he can be for you what like a Tyler Bozak was, for example, maybe even a little bit better at this point in his career. He's 28 years old. That's the kind of guy that I would be interested in, to bring in here and say, hey, your responsibility is, is to be really good defensively and score like 15 goals Mm -hmm. for us. That, I think, should be the top priority for the Blues going into this offseason. I don't see that player in free agency. Not this offseason. I mentioned Comfer, and it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, look over here, acting as if there's like 12 of them that are available. True. He might be literally the only one not named Oscar Sundquist that's available. And the thing with JT Comfer is, I mean, you're going to be looking at that as probably your third-line center, and Shen would be playing second-line center for you, which is probably fine. I I just, the amount of money you're going to have to pay, he's making $3.5 million now. He's 28 years old. Somebody's going to give him $4.5, $5 million this this offseason, which probably isn't going to be Colorado. This comes down to, to three separate things for me. It first starts with Booch. Can Booch improve his face-off numbers and become a realistic center? Because Doug Armstrong doesn't just throw out the Patrice Bergeron name with Pavel Buchnevich unless they think that maybe he could get to that level. We already know the defense is there. But if that's not it, because I'm on the same ilk as you, BK, saying he's better suited for this team as a winger. Then you get to the trade market. And there are names. I mean, last or this past offseason, uh, Martin Natchez's name was brought up an awful lot connected to the Blues with the Carolina Hurricanes. And the Carolina Hurricanes, depending on what they want to do, they got a ton of cap space, so I doubt they would do this. But he's 24 years old, one more year, three mil, and then he's an RFA. Maybe that's a, a pond that they can jump into. Or maybe there's another centerman out there, which there always is, that doesn't mesh with this team, especially when teams get bounced in the playoffs. 
And then the third is you're you're drafting and developing. And that is probably the more likely one, which that makes this a little bit more of a longer retool. This is more the two to three year span rather than saying next year they're competing. But you hope that that young player that you're drafting and developing from everything I'm hearing, Zachary Dean might be this guy. He's improved his 200 foot game. And in the juniors right now, he's having a hell of a playoff run. Maybe he's a third-line center for you next year that can move up in the next couple of seasons. Or maybe you draft and develop that player in this upcoming draft, depending on where you select. But those are the routes to go for that shutdown centerman because you just, you're just you not going to go to free agency to get it. I would love an Oscar Sundquist return. But Oscar Sundquist, unless he's 100% healthy, isn't the most reliable centerman. He's more of like a, a wing center utility guy. And he's probably also playing on your fourth line, which, again, you're putting guys into a different spot. So I think it's more likely it's a trade route this offseason or you're going to be drafting and developing that player. I I don't disagree with that. And I I think they do have to find that because I'm not sure Thomas is going to end up being that guy. And and someone from the text line, 314, said uh, Thomas was all those things the season prior, though. I thought in the playoffs last year during that run, he was not particularly good as being a shutdown defensive centerman. And remember, I remember us having the conversations of, had he shown that step, then it would have made it easier to part from Ryan O'Reilly. Well, then they made the decision by, you know, not being good enough by the trade deadline. They had to move on to him to get assets. So it's really a season plus the playoffs. I haven't really seen Thomas take that next step in being that centerman. So I think that's where it comes down to what you were saying of they need to find that guy. Because I, as much as I love Robert Thomas, I think he's more of a playmaker than he is ever going to be a shutdown centerman that can go out there and do it every night when you get to the playoffs. Can you do it once or twice? Maybe. But is he a guy that's going to be able to do it for 16 wins to get you to a Stanley Cup final and win it all? I just don't know if he's going to get there. Maybe he ends up developing developing into that guy. But right now, I haven't seen the signs from him to be that. So they've got to go and find him. You know who's another guy that maybe they take a look at? And again... <clears throat> these are all difficult to do because it it's hard to know what teams are going to be looking for this offseason or what direction they're going to be going. But we've brought up a million different times the possibility of the, the Flames blowing it up or moving in a different direction, pivoting, basically. Elias Lindholm may, mm-hmm. maybe is another name that you could throw out there. Whenever you're looking for trades, look for guys that are pending UFAs. Or RFAs. Yeah, because those are the guys that are either hit the market and their teams don't want to lose them for nothing, similar to what happened last year with Matthew Kachuk, for example, or guys that the team just knows right now, like, hey, we're not going to resign them because of money, because of uh, situation, because of personnel, whatever the reason is. Lindholm was asked the other day, Alex, we mentioned this on whether or not he's had any contract negotiation talk yet with the Flames, and he basically said, like, yeah, yeah, I I don't know if that's something that we're going to be doing. If they're not going to do that, then he is probably somebody they would look to move on from. He also would fit into this category of like legit either number one or number two to uh, number two center for you as the Blues. The problem is you then have to pay him Mm -hmm. and you then have to give him like a seven plus million dollar per year contract. And that might take you out of the Pavel Buchnevich sweepstakes unless you're able to do some stuff on your defensive core and change that over. There's a lot of things that have to happen here, but. Um, that's the kind of thing that if you don't go to the free agency market, you're probably going to have to make a trade and finding that guy is really tough to do without this, spending money in doing so. This is why, and it's been rare, but when the blues aren't in the playoffs, my rooting interest is on teams to collapse in a round so that it affects you in the off season and two teams that aren't in the playoffs. One you mentioned in Calgary, the other is Philly. Those are two teams that I would say pay close attention to in the off season because they retool. Somebody might benefit I don't you there. Want anybody from Philly. I, I've looked up and down that roster a million different times. Like, Oh man, there's gotta be a trade. Travis here. Konechny is 
the guy that but would... he's what you have. He's not good defensively. He's not. He's but... small. He's a he's a little guy, and he's not good defensively. He's a little petite guy out he's there. He's my size. Yeah, yeah you don't want him size. on the ice. Uh, but I, I mean, good again, player, but... he's feisty, which I think is important. He's feisty. But we what? You don't like feisty? You don't like petite feistiness? But this is where. And I don't, other than the Western Conference teams like Vegas, because Vegas is the team we all know my obsession with Nicholas Haig yep. on the defensive side, but it's going to be rare for teams in the West to want to make deals with you if they miss the playoffs. But there's a ton in the East. Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay might decide to trade some pieces if they miss out because of the cap flexibility. What about the Toronto Maple Leafs? Interested in a guy maybe like a William Nylander if they decide to go down that route, who can play center if you need him to. Um, then you've also got the New York Rangers who are an intriguing team. The Islanders could chip off some pieces if it doesn't work out. There are always teams that if they get bounced in the first round and in cap hell and thinking, all right, we're going to transition this. Those are the teams that I'm kind of rooting for to lose because that benefits the blues. So I did want to ask you about that, Alex, because as I was watching the, the stars versus the wild game last night, me and my wife were watching this late, late as that one went into double overtime we were gagging the whole time. Cause none of them are as talented as the blues. That's right. Um, Right, I, she asked me at one point, who do you want to win this game? And I looked over at her and I said, honestly, I don't really care. <laughs> like, I don't find myself having a rooting interest in the Western Conference side of the playoffs. Do you guys? Like, Not, not only do I not have a rooting interest, but I told her, I was like, you know what? I kind of hate the Wild. Yeah. I, I don't know why. I, I just, just like the team. Same. Um, and so I would prefer to see the Stars win this series and win that game in particular. But... Like, I don't like the Avalanche. I don't like the Wilds, and that's probably just relating back to last year's postseason. But other than that, I don't really have a rooting interest, and I don't necessarily have many teams in the West that I hate right now. Do yeah. you guys feel that way? Uh, I, I dislike Minnesota, so I would like to see Minnesota lose in the first round again. Although, it's weird because I, I really do love Bill Guerin, their general manager, yeah. and Ryan Reeves. Also, they play the way that we want to see the Blues play. So, like, yeah. everything about them is like, I'm... I'm envious of who they yeah. are as a team, but I also hate them. Right. And the same can be said about Dallas. So like, I just hate that first round matchup because I dislike Jamie Ben, although I'd love to have a Jamie Ben on your roster. But in the West, I mean, Seattle would be a fun thing to see, make some type of run. But again, like the Western Conference is so weird. I think I'm more rooting for teams to choke in the first round so that it benefits the Blues on the Eastern Conference side. That's even more true than anything. If I had to root it would be rooting for like former blues like Orion O'Reilly, but I really want to see the Toronto Maple Leafs lose in that first round just because it's going to benefit St. Louis. So if I had to go rooting interest, one, it's going to be who benefits the blues the most, and two is my $100 bet that I have on the Kings. Can I follow up on that real quick? Yeah. We're getting a bunch of texts about the Stars draft pick that the blues get. Okay, this is something that I do think has been lost in translation with the way that that pick works. The only way that it changes for the blues is if they get to the West or if they get to the conference finals or further. The way that the NHL's draft, not the lottery, but the playoff teams that do not make at least the conference finals works, it goes based on their regular season record from what I've been able to understand from reading up on this thing. So the Stars pick is basically locked into 25 unless they go to the Western Conference final. So if they get there, okay, sure, yeah, now it now it goes to 29 or worse for the Blues. But otherwise, you don't have to root against them in this specific series. It, it doesn't much matter. That's that's kind of locked in. It's the next series where you would then be rooting against uh, the Stars, and the same thing is true, of course, 
of the Maple Leafs. Uh, yeah, that well. rule changed post-lockout, the most recent mm-hmm. lockout, because it used to be where they finished in the playoffs was their positioning, Correct. because that's what I thought. That changed post-lockout, and so, yeah, the positions didn't already set unless the final four teams in both the West and the East. That's where you got to root against them. If they make it to the next round, yeah. then you want them to lose like crazy, because yeah. you do not want that falling in the 29-32 to 32 spot. But, T-Bone, um, who do you hate or love in this year's playoffs? I, the team that I find myself... In It's weird because I've got money on the Kings to win it all. But the team that I find myself kind of interested in seeing them go on a run is the Edmonton Oilers in the West. Just because, I mean, they've got the best player in the NHL, a generational type player doing it where the greatest of all time did it in Edmonton with Wayne Gretzky. They've got Connor McDavid now and Leon Dreisaitl there. And I find them to be a fascinating story because it's like (laughs) when you were watching uh, LeBron in his prime go for his first title. Like you always were kind of rooting for LeBron where it's like, man, this guy's great. I really want to see him win a title. I kind of feel that way about Connor McDavid because every time he's got the puck on his uh, stick, I mean, last night, again, I, I've got money on the Kings, so I find myself rooting for them, but I find the Oilers interesting. Every time McDavid got the puck on his stick, I went, oh, boy, there he goes again. And he's like a little water bug flying out there on the ice that can score like 60 goals and put up 150 points. Like, I find them as a team that I I find myself leaning towards rooting for them just because they've got one of the best players in the NHL, and I think it would just be great to watch him go on to win, whether it be win a Stanley Cup or at least get into a Stanley Cup, because not only is it better for the sport, the NHL, but it'd just be great to see one of the best players all time playing at the highest stage and trying to get his first ever Stanley Cup. Yeah, I I don't really care, honestly. Like I said, I root like, for I, teams to lose because I want them to change their roster. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, 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 to- I think what you're saying for the league is totally true. For me, I don't really care. And, and I don't know what that is about. That's a me thing, not a league thing, but... Um, the Western Conference, I, I'm watching for the games more than I am for any specific result. The Eastern Conference is the one that I'm captivated by. All of these series are incredibly compelling in my mind. Like, Jersey versus the Rangers. That's going to be one of the best series in the first round that you're going to see. into that one. Toronto versus Tampa. Can't okay, wait for that. Yeah, let's do this. And then once you get to the second round, and it's potentially Boston versus one of those two teams, that's going to be amazing. And then when you get to the second round, it's either probably Carolina versus one of Jersey or New York. Man, that that side of the bracket I'm super compelled by. But the Western Conference, for some reason, just doesn't do it for me. Coming up next, the Cardinals outfield mix is ripe for criticism. And it feels like that's leading to Ollie Marmel having to make some really difficult decisions. How is the fan base going to react to that? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Swing and a drive. That ball is hammered. And that ball is not coming back. Alec Burleson with a thunderbolt. And the Cardinals, with more two-out magic, pull a little closer. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest. Alec Burleson, one of the rare bright spots from the game last night offensively for the Cardinals. And Alec, Alec, Bur- Alex, Alec Burleson. You can call me is, whatever you want, man. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate you. Uh, has been a bright spot for the offense, really, this season. He's been hitting the hell out of the baseball so far this year. And defensively, Listen, he's not great, but I, he can yeah. catch the ball. Can, can we have a can we have a moment of truth? Yeah, yeah. Turn the mics off, yeah, T. Bone. Okay, mics are off. He's been better defensively this year than Jordan Walker has. Uh, yeah, okay. We could have had the mics but, off, but 
Did Alec Burleson transition from another position last year to the outfield? I mean, he's he's been better offensively and defensively so far this year than Jordan Walker. Uh-huh. Now, Jordan Walker has a higher upside. His his sprints be like all of the stuff projecting wise. I think Jordan Walker is going to eventually be a better player than Alec Burleson. That might even happen this season. But so far this year, that's how I would evaluate those two players that are making uh, their debuts in the big leagues. Now, that being said, Alex, this is a tough spot for Ollie Marmel to be in. And the reason why I say that is because you now have Lars Newtbar, who has been inserted into the mix. He's probably going to play a decent amount in center field because you have Walker and Burleson, who are both going to get pretty close to everyday opportunities in the corners. That means Dylan Carlson's on the bench. That means Tyler O'Neill is on the bench. That means you've got other guys that could potentially play in the infield that are going to be on the bench or be at DH for you. This is what Ollie Marmel told John Denton yesterday. Quote, it's not fair, and that's not what this industry is about. It's not fair, and I'm not going to describe it as fair, talking about the playing time. Is it fair that Dylan Carlson's going to be on the bench? Not really, because he deserves to play three or four times a week. But at whose expense? I'm not going to sit here and say Dylan Carlson should be okay with that. I'm not going to say that Tyler O'Neill should be okay with this or that whoever sits should be okay with this. We have a lot of outfielders. All of them have an op- or could be playing every day, but they can't, and that makes things pretty difficult. This is one of those good problems to have, Alex. The Cardinals have too many players that are deserving of major league at-bats. But the reason why I find it to be so interesting is because if you're a fan, you look at this and you say to yourself, but my guy should be playing today. <laughs> Whoever your guy is. Like the person who just texted in and said O'Neill is one of the hottest players right now. Major League Baseball said he's one of the hardest outs. He's also two for 12 in his last three games. See, not th- playing. That's the thing is like I could make the argument. Tyler O'Neill should be playing more often because of the way that he's been hitting lately and because of how hard he hits the ball and his upside, especially in left field, if you wanted to play him there. Okay, who are you pulling out? You pulling out Jordan Walker? He's now going to be sent down to the minors? Are you pulling out Jordan Walker? You're going to sit him for a few days? Well, that doesn't feel like a great way to utilize that (laughs) asset. Like, this is where it gets really tough. I understand there's a case to be made for all of these guys, but if they don't hit, then the criticism will go to Ali Marmol of saying, well, he should have played so-and-so, or he should have played my guy because my horse in this race is the one that would be winning if you just gave him the opportunity. The second-guessing opportunities here, it is ripe for the picking. And I'm not telling you that Ollie Marmel is above any of that criticism. He's not. He's a manager. He's going to make some mistakes. But Brand. the way that this roster is constructed makes it such that it is really easy to criticize Ollie Marmel for whatever the decisions are that he makes, especially in the outfield. I mean, if we're going to talk the outfield, we should also bring up that Brendan Donovan has struggled over these last few games. And if we're going to go down that path, then maybe uh, Nolan Gorman gets some opportunities at second base, or maybe Tommy Edmond comes out of the lineup and Brendan Donovan gets some shortstop opportunities. The way I look at this right now, especially for a team that can't score anybody when they're in scoring position is my hottest hitters are going to be playing and I'll figure out the defense from there. Did you say uh, Brendan Donovan's been struggling? lately i'm yeah. not trying to correct you i'm just like this would be my retort brendan donovan is currently on a six game hitting streak understandably so but he's two for eight in his last two games and he's on an eight game on base streak congratulations <laughs> guess what that gets to do you get to you get a day off because you're not hitting like an alec burleson or no one but Gorman he's raised his ops 60 points over the last eight games like right. th- this is the thing is alex has a fair point I've got a fair point, but it's my guy. BK. <laughs> exactly. And so it comes back to, but I want this guy playing. Yeah. And that is really what this comes down to is all he's got is guys right now. All these guys appear to be Lars Newbar, 
Alec Burleson, and Jordan Walker. We'll see if it works. If I would have told you this at the beginning of spring training that that would be your starting outfield on April 18th. There's a lot of other outfielders on the IL. We would have had a lot of follow-up questions as to what happened. What in the world is going on in St. Louis? If I would have told you this last July, that on April 18th of this year, your starting outfield would be Alec Burleson, Lars Nupar, and Jordan Walker. We would have all looked at each other like we had eight heads. This is going to be a bad season. Because none of that makes any sense. Did the Cardinals go into a rebuild? Like, what is going on here? And so it's... It's weird, man. I don't have a great explanation as to how you go about this moving forward. I do think Burleson having this deep bone bruise maybe makes things a little easier. Maybe you do end up getting him some more opportunities at DH, and that opens up a spot for one of Dylan Carlson or Tyler O'Neill. What do you you guys make of their outfield mix right now? I I think you do what Alex said, where you just basically play the hottest bat. And though, what was the numbers you said of O'Neill? Like two for his last 12? Two for his last 12. Like, in theory, it's like, okay, that's a small sample size. But with the way the outfield is with six different guys, it's, oh, two for your last 12. That probably means you're like fifth on the depth chart right oh. now. So I, I think that is how you just approach it. I, I think you figure out, okay, who's sitting right-handed pitching the best right now. Okay, these are the guys who are going to be locked in. Alec Burleson's crushing righties. He's going to be our left fielder. Where you put him in the batting guard doesn't really matter. But he's crushing right-handed pitching, so he's got to be in the lineup. If it's Dylan Carlson or Tyler O'Neill, whoever's hitting left-handed pitcher pitching better, they go into the starting lineup. Like, I, I think it's just going to be this revolving door. I don't think it's going to be a, you know what, we're going to try. Yes, question, Mr. Kylie. Brandon. So what do I do with the guy that's won for his last 16? Trade six strikeouts and no walks. Is that Carlson? Because he's not playing. No. Who's that? Jordan Walker. Brandon Donovan. So that's what makes this even more interesting is because he has to be locked into right field. No matter the struggles, he has to be locked in on small sample sizes because you do not want to bench a young player like Jordan Walker. And just to your, I think you said it earlier, you don't want to waste that kind of asset. And by having him sit on the bench, you've got to let him play and see if he can get through these struggles. If he continues to struggle and it goes on for about a month, that's when the serious conversation comes into play of, okay, do we send him down to AAA to work on whatever, whatever his flaws are? But right now he's still a lock. Honestly, I think Lars Newbart is still a lock in center field. I think you want to know what those two guys are for the first half of the season. I think the spot that you're really trying to figure out right now, and really, Ollie, basically what he said in that quote was essentially, uh, you don't like it play better. I think right now, you just have a rotating door in left field. When Burleson cools off, either O'Neill or Carlson <laughs> takes that opportunity. If Burleson doesn't cool off, well, good luck Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson trying to get playing time because he's playing better and he deserves to be in this outfield. I, I don't even think you worry about the defense at this point. I think right now it's just whoever the hottest bat is is going to be playing in left field with Newbar and Walker locked into those spots. I think you basically have five players right now that are battling for three spots in your lineup. Burleson, O'Neal, Carlson, Donovan, Gorman. Do you guys, are those the five that you would agree in the three spots that I'm talking about? Left field, DH, second base. I I would only, I would just put it at three right now. Right now, I think Donovan and Gorman are locks in their spots. I don't think Brendan Donovan is. The I, reason I think why Donovan's I say that is because better. Donovan can play in left field. So there are days where like Donovan's in left, Gorman's at DH, uh, or excuse me, Donovan's in left, Gorman's at second, and you can have one of those other three, like Burleson, for example, at DH. So I think you have the the position versatility with those five players. Maybe you do have those two players locked in. So basically at that point, you've got one spot for Burleson, O'Neal, or Carlson. Yeah, and that's where I And it am. depends on either left field or DH, depending on the day. Because I, I made the point, I think it was, what, last week in the Colorado series, that right now, I and I still stand by this, I, I think right now your best defensive alignment in the outfield 
would be Donovan in left, Newpar in center with Walker in right, and then you can DH Burleson and play Gorman at second base. I thought Gorman was really good defensively last night. He made a couple of nice backhanded plays, turned a really good double play with a guy right in his face uh, in the first inning. Like, I, I still think your best alignment outfield-wise defensively, and this has changed because Newpar was on the I.L. in Colorado, but would be Newpar in center with Donovan in left just because I think he's a better left fielder than Alec Burleson. And I, I love Alec Burleson's bat, but if I can just take away that defensive aspect and have him just yeah. D.H., that would be perfect and Nolan for me. Gorman's at second base. That's a lineup right there that I'm going with. So now Tyler O'Neill's a bench bat. Yeah, yeah. I, until until Unfortunately. until Burleson cools off and Tyler O'Neill's playing well, and, and we'll see how Tyler O'Neill responds to being a bench bat. Then yeah, he's he's a fourth outfielder for me, and Car- Carlson's even a fifth outfielder. So he's going to really have to prove himself to jump up over Carlson Tyler O'Neill. Carlson is the one that's getting squeezed the most. I, I do. Because be- against lefties, he's starting, but otherwise he's really not in your lineup at all right now. The, the tough part is, like, Tyler O'Neill in his last, what is this now, nine games, seven games that were starts, has hit the ball pretty well. <laughs> like, it's it's a it's a super fascinating spot. And, and this is where Ollie can't make the right call. For for a certain segment of the fan base, no matter what Ollie does here, he's going to be criticized for it. At some point, I think if you're Mo, you got to make a trade. I think so too. You have to make a trade so that you can lighten up this load of we've got five potentially six guys who need to be playing because of their position. And I know people are going to say, "Well, that's what you did with Randy or Rosarena." If it happens, then it was never going to work out in St. Louis, but you need to go acquire something that fixes another issue that you've got. This is where the the utility of these players, like, for example, a Dylan Carlson. Dylan Carlson's role right now is basically be a really good hitter against left-handed pitching, which means one out of every three or four days he's going to be in your starting lineup. Is that worth more than what you would be able to acquire for Dylan Carlson in a trade? Is Tyler O'Neill as essentially a fourth outfielder right now, is that worth more than what you would get for Dylan Carlson in a trade, either now or as we go along further in the season? I don't know the answer because I don't know how teams value those guys, but that's what they have to be kind of weighing internally on whether or not and when to make a move with those two guys. Because I think those are the players that you're looking at. I don't think this team is trading Alec Burleson. I don't think this team is even considering a trade for Jordan Walker. And Lars Newbar is one of the most untouchable players on the roster right now because of the way that he profiles as a hitter. He he is everything that the Cardinals wants to be offensively. Lars Newbar. Somebody just texted and said, send Walker down because then you don't have to make a trade and send him there until he gets his confidence back. I think if you do that, you're setting yourself for a little, a longer stretch for Jordan Walker to hit his potential than what it is if you keep giving him these opportunities. I, I just think that, like, I don't know whether that th- that's the case or not, but right now we're not there with Walker. Right now, we knew coming into the season, there's going to be time. There was This happened in spring training. There's going to be spring. time where Jordan Walker is going to go through a really tough stretch. Right now, they are slidering him to death. It's just slider after slider after slider, and he's chasing. That happens. We've seen it with basically every young player that comes up to the big leagues for the Cardinals. There is something that they find with your swing where they have found Jordan Walker is more than happy to chase out of the zone right now. He's got to find a way to bring them back in. And when they do, he's got to find a way to do damage in the air. His problem so far this year, he's on the ground way too often and he's chasing. If he can fix those two things, he's going to be fine. In spring training, he was struggling mightily at the end of it, and then he made the adjustment at the start of the regular season. Now it's time for him to do that again. Coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Now I know why nothing ever works in this building because BK hits it. <laughs> so Alex's so mic is just my mic. She's like jamming him in the face repeatedly. It's like a jab straight <laughs> to the nose. My petite nose. Oh, sorry, that was you. No, yours is just normal. It's a uh, it's a perspective. What's thing. smaller on your head? Your ears or your nose? I mean, probably my ears. Yeah, we learned yesterday that BK is the only one in this room that uh, has disconnected ears. Congrats, no, buddy. No, I think they were connected. Oh, yeah, his are connected. Ours are disconnected, like yeah, normal people. His lobes. Big fan of the lobes. All right, T-Bone, what do you got for us <laughs> in the joke show today, man? Have you guys, you guys know how bad Oakland is at baseball, right? <laughs> I'm familiar. Worst team in baseball, mm-hmm. like minus 79 run differential. Moved. Here's a fun game. Alex, how many Oakland A's can you name? Oh, gosh, good luck. That one. Now, former A's, I can list a ton for you, but on that team, not one. Steven Piscotty still there? Nope. Um, Do you Ro- know Jerry's familiar on that team? Did not. Ro- 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 oh, Alexis Diaz is a A. Mm-hmm. A lead miss, not a Alexis miss. Diaz. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Chase Peterson is an A. Okay. Is that stinks. Jack Peterson? Connor Capel is an A. He's on the major hey, league. Right. I remember uh, Eno Sarris had an article, Breakout Candace. It was like, large new bar. And then it was Connor Capel. And I went, really? what? <laughs> I've never heard of like 90% of the players on that roster. What's the, the outfielder? Ro- is it Ro- Romano or Roman- yeah, Romano? Yeah, Romano. He's, yeah, he's, he's a guy that a lot of Cardinals fans wanted in the offseason. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so things are not going well in Oakland. Not just oh, based on the roster they? that we just kind of scrolled through. Yeah. Their uh, visitor, have you guys heard about their visiting oh, broadcast God. booth? No. They can't awesome. use it right now. They can't use it. Why? And they're, well, I, I'll let the SNY, the Mets broadcast, which was just there, explain what, what's happening. They walk in the booth and immediately were met by the stench what? of the possum having, you know, done his business <laughs> in the booth. What? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So ap- apparently... The, the booth reeked so badly of possum leavings yes. that um, an executive decision was made to move us to this booth, which is somewhat smaller and has, you know, a few impediments, like there's a pole right in front of me. See, see there's a pole right so here. So they got moved from their booth because a possum pooped in it? A possum, a is, possum living is living there. In the uh, road road visitor's booth. And nobody thought to and go get it inside out? Inside of the wall. Nobody. Apparently it's been there for like years. But apparently, apparently the Angels broadcast team, they were there for the opening, uh, uh, opening day. And the SNY crew says earlier in that cut that during the Angels broadcast, the possum came out and just started walking across... Yep like their table in front of them in which they have all their stuff on. Oakland is in shambles, not just with the baseball team. They can't even have a booth that's I'm successful sorry, up there. I'm sorry, but if a possum is living in your walls for multiple years, that's on you. That's why they're moving to Vegas. It's just a possum figure issue. Out, figure out a way to go in there and get the possum out. 
They should call Alex Ferrario. Have you seen their record? I don't do possums. Aren't they like 3 and 13? 3 and 14 on the season. Yeah, their baseball ability is playing possum. Dude, they might be one of the worst teams in the history of baseball. Worse than the Astros that uh, lost what was the 100 wins? I mean, they they have a chance to be worse, yeah. Um, Their best hitter on the roster in terms of OPS right now is their catcher. Shea Langliers, I think he's like one of their top prospects. After that, it's a story Ruiz, who they traded for in the offseason with a 790 OPS. They have like four guys that are hitting above 250 on the season. It's it's horrendous. And, and somehow they got, their pitching is worse than their hitting is. And now they got possums pooping in broadcast booths. I mean, think of the guys that they've had on that roster over the last few years, though. Yeah. That Chapman team was and good like two years ago. And now it's just a disaster. They're an embarrassment yeah. to Major League Baseball. When Lesme Diaz is your number three hole hitter, there's some serious issues going on. This was on. their pitching a few years ago. This is 2020. This is the 2020 pandemic year. Chris Bassett, Lozardo, Manaya, Montes. They had uh, Liam Hendricks in their bullpen. Like they had real pitchers. Jake Diekman, who was who has been around the league now for a few years. Uh, Blackburn was that. Like they had real dudes. And they completely dismantled that team and got nothing in return. Marcus Simeon was there. Matt Olson was there. Mark Cannell was there. Chapman was Grossman there. was there. Yeah, Chapman. Chapman was Sean there. Sean Murphy, Murphy was there. Was there. They, had got, they had the makings of a good team. They just refused to invest in it. It's, it's embarrassing what they've done to that organization. Absolutely embarrassing. It'll change when they're in Las Vegas. And that's embarrassing, too. That is true. Coming up next. Well, what's embarrassing is a possum is pooping in your walls and you're not figuring out how to get rid of the possum. (laughs) That's embarrassing. All all of this is bad. All of it. Coming up next, are we really questioning the decision to pull Jack Flaherty out of that game? I couldn't believe what I heard when I got in my car on my way to work today. We'll talk about it next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Marte leads off the seventh. Mattel hits it deep. Left center. Newtbar. Look it up. And it's gone. Cattell Marte. They answer back and it's two to one Diamondback. And Guriel bidding for one. Sends this one toward the bullpen. And it's over the head of O'Neill. Lourdes Guriel Jr. stops at second. A home run and a double open up the D-back seven. That is outside ball four. And that is going to set up first and second. Nobody out. That will be the end of the line for Jack Flaherty. 90 pitches. Homer double walk starts the seventh. And that brings on Andre Palante. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest is Jack Flaherty was removed from the game last night in the seventh inning without recording an out. Alex, I thought it was the right move. In fact, I thought everybody agreed that that would be the right move in that spot. Jack Flaherty had allowed at that point a home run, a double, and a walk. And during that walk, during that at-bat, his body language was atrocious. Like, he knew that he didn't have anything left in the tank. I don't I don't know why it went so awry for him so quickly, but I thought it was the right move to get him out of the game in that spot. And they went to a guy that I'm not sure I trust a lot right now with... Andre Pallante against a couple of lefties. 
Andre Pallante is getting crushed right now by left-handed hitters, and he had just gotten over some of the soreness uh, this year against left-handed pitchers, or left-handed hitters, rather. Andre Pallante is allowing seven for 22. That's what they are against him with two walks, a double, and two home runs now. They're hitting him hard. So if you wanted to question anything, I guess it was the decision to go with Pallante over Cabrera. I didn't have a huge issue with it because prior to last night, I wasn't sure if I trusted Cabrera yet in a spot like that. I didn't think he had good options is basically what I'm getting at because you couldn't go to Thompson in that spot. You didn't have great. It was just a bad situation as a manager. But then I listened to Randy this morning and they were talking about needing to get more innings out of their starters, which I think everybody would like to see. But he was talking about the decision to take Jack Flaherty out of the game. I was surprised to hear that there was a retort to taking him out of the game. Here's what he had to say. I get the numbers, people. I understand that, say, they're they're worried about the third time through the lineup Mm -hmm. with starting pitchers. But at the same time, don't you have to worry about your bullpen, too, and the the toll that taking a pitcher out maybe a little bit early takes on your bullpen? Why not give Jack Flaherty last night, for example, the ability to try to get out of that jam? Because of what happened all the way through that. It wasn't just a jam. It was a home run, a double, and a walk. Like, the jam would have been a walk and a double and nobody out and say, all right, let's see if we can get through it. But you already had given up that home run and then you give up the double and then you give up the walk. Like you saw it unraveling. I mean, anybody who, who watches body language could tell that Jack Flaherty was getting very internally frustrated with how that inning was going. And the worst thing I think you can do is when you know, you got somebody who has stated in the past that he's got to control his emotions on the mound is witnessing the motions take over and saying, let's see if he can get through this because the game's going to be gone like it was when Palante came in. How many teams do you guys think have averaged more innings per start this season than the Cardinals? More innings per start than Ooh, the Cardinals. This is a fun this game, season. and I know we're like going to question, so I'm going to go. Yeah, I was going to say like five or six. You guys are the worst. Ah, I mean, you set it up way. as a trick you question. You stink at these games. It, it's seven. Seven teams so far this year have averaged more innings per start this year than the Cardinals. That's actually surprising. It's the Padres it's really at number surprising. one, who are also really struggling right now. The Royals, who are terrible. Houston, who has awesome starting pitching. The Dodgers, the Brewers, the Twins, who have been awesome starting pitching-wise this year. And just in front of the Cardinals, uh, averaging like an extra third of an inning per game, is the Pittsburgh Pirates. Are the Braves behind the Cardinals? Yes. Every other team that I didn't mention there is behind the Cardinals in terms of average innings per start for them by their starter so far this year. I only just asked the Braves because that's the most surprising one because of their rotation that they've got and for how dominant they've been this season. Now, to be clear, there could be some stuff in here where it's like a team went with an opener for a game and that changes up a little bit of the innings. Like There is some context that is important here. I'm cherry-picking a bit, but that... (laughs) Like, I just don't know how many teams have used an opener so far this year. It's hard to go back through and eliminate that stuff from the equation. But the reason I bring that up, even if it adds in like three more teams that are above them, Cardinals are at worst middle of the pack when it comes to the number of innings that they're getting out of their starters. They're not pulling them any earlier than most of these other teams around Major League Baseball. Ollie, in fact, you could argue, is leaving these guys in there a little bit longer than he probably should to find out what their threshold is right now. Like, Think about, what was it, Saturday when he left Matson for 110 pitches? That's not something Ollie typically does. You know why he did that? Because he needed to. He needed innings because this bullpen is fried right now. And that's about injury. It's about usage. It's about them being sick last week with a couple of guys. And it's about not trusting many of these players right now that are coming out of your bullpen. So 
last night I thought he did he handled it exactly the way that I thought he should I just think you should have gone to another reliever I mean for everything we're saying about Jack Flaherty there of like just not trusting it in that situation I don't trust Andre Pallante in that I trust Pallante in that situation just as much as I would have him going out and pulling Jordan Hooks in Jordan Hicks in and putting him on the mound and I know Henesis Cabrera you really don't trust right now but I don't trust Je- I think any of the players that he put into that spot, we would have second guessed what he did. Probably any of the players that were available to use. Probably, but the way that Andre Pallante has been pitching this season, it does feel like that that was going to go haywire quickly. Now, I didn't think it was going to be a grand slam, but I was expecting more runs to be scored when Pallante came into that game. I, I kind of agree with that, but I, I also agree with what BK said. I, I think any reliever you bring in there, I, I think would be second guessing it. I, I thought it was the right decision. Go get Jack because I thought that inning was uh, unraveling, and, and I, I understand what Randy trying to get to there of saying, you know, they really need uh, starting pitchers to eat innings so this bullpen can kind of relax a little bit, don't have to cover as many innings. I mean, he was in the seventh inning. If we're talking about the third or fourth inning, that's where I would I would agree more in terms of, yeah, you got to try and have sure. him work out of that. But he had already done essentially a quality start had it not been Palante giving up the home run. That, that's what erased the quality start for Jack Flaherty. He essentially did what he was supposed to do. Give you six quality innings. He tried to push him for that seventh. It didn't go the way you were expecting. And when it started to unravel, <laughs> you go to a guy that last year, split-wise, was good against left-handed pitching. I, I probably would have gone to Cabrera there, but I understood either move of what you're trying to do. So I, I don't really blame Ollie for the move to go get Jack Flaherty. I, I thought it was the right decision at the right time because I could tell he wasn't going to get out of that inning yeah. because everything was just unraveling so quickly. It just If you want to question the bullpen decision, I, I get it, but we're always going to second-guess a bullpen decision. The problem that we have right now is not like, oh, well, you should have left it. You got trust issues with pretty much 75% of your pitching staff. Yeah. That's the issue right now. But the problem is you don't care about that side of it because your offense isn't hitting, and that's what's losing these games for you. It was a 1-1 baseball game before that home run was hit to where it felt like the game was out of reach. It's whack-a-mole. It's whack-a-mole with the Cardinals right now. They're not hitting with runners in scoring position, and when they do hit with runners in scoring position, the starting pitching doesn't go deep enough. They don't give you a quality start. When the starting pitching does get a little deeper, now it's the bullpen that's giving something up because you don't have enough guys to be able to trust back there, and they're overused earlier in the week because one of your other starters wasn't very good, and then you had to go really deep with somebody else like it feels like it's something new every night and this is why we said at the beginning of the year this offense needs to be really good right away to make up for their figuring it outness made up word there that's a great with word. this starting pitching and with this pitching staff as a whole because right now they're they're trying to figure stuff out they're trying to make it work with jordan hicks at the big league level which i disagree with the decision they're trying to make it work or try to figure out does hennessy's cabrera still have it can he still be a high leverage lefty? I'm not there yet with him. I, I'm very much like cautiously optimistic at best with Cabrera. The velocity was once again down last night. I know the swing and miss stuff looked good. The slider was better, but man, I don't know. I, I'm going to need a little bit of time before I'm all in on a guy like Cabrera, Cabrera. Early on reminds me of what Packy was last year. Not so much in terms of stuff. Like against right-handed batters, for example, he's faced ten right. He's had ten at bats against righties, ten at bats against lefties. The righties, three hundred batting average, thousand slugging percentage, thirteen hundred OPS. Very small sample size, but he has struck out four against lefties. Zero for ten with five strikeouts. He reminds me a lot of what Packy was last year, where it was like, hey, against a lefty, Cabrera can really get him out. Against a righty, oh boy, the this is going to be a like, ride. What's the role for a guy like that in today's major leagues, where you've got the three batter minimum, and they can they can just 
pull back the lefty, put in a righty, and it's like, hey, you become Mike Trout suddenly because you bat from the right side against Tennessee Cabrera. It's a tough spot to be in as a manager, and it's why we go back to what we've been talking about since the beginning of the show and really for a little while now, which is this bullpen needs a refresh, man. And I don't know how they do it, and I think it's going to wait until Wilking Rodriguez is ready to go off the IL and Adam Wainwright is ready to go off the IL. I would assume either this weekend or next week, we're going to be talking about some roster moves that the Cardinals are making. I think you'll see decisions at that point are urgent and they need to be made. Wayno's coming back. Maybe that means Woodford in your bullpen. Maybe that means uh, Woodford sent down to AAA. Maybe you bring up a Jake Walsh. Maybe you look at Zuniga. Like there's options down in AAA right now for them. But Jojo Romero has been great down there at some point soon. This team is going to have to make some decisions on who they like out of this bullpen and who they're willing to go ahead and let go. Jordan Hicks might be one of those guys that you have to potentially let go. Better to forget it. Coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up, and we're here to make the call. It's BK and Ferrario's Bet It or Forget It on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by Train Heating and Cooling. Visit traininfo.com. It's hard to stop a train. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's time for Better to Forget at 314-399-646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved. T-Bone, what do you got for us? So Jason Stark on Twitter released about an hour ago, the MLB is going to use the Atlantic League as a rule change test lab. Again, they've been doing this before. That's where we first saw automated ball strikes. I think we saw bigger bases there at first. There are three new rules they are introducing this year to the Atlantic League. A designated pinch runner that can enter at any time and then return later in the game. Ooh, I like that. Kind of like they do in uh, high school baseball where they have courtesy runners that come on for catchers. That was my role in high school. There is only a one-time disengagement rule. So in Major League Baseball, there's two for pitchers. They're only going to cut it down uh, to one don't do that. in the Atlantic League. I don't like that. And they are bringing the return of the double hook. If a starter exits early, so does the DH. Bet it or forget it. I Ooh. like that. We will see one of these three rule changes in Major League Baseball within three years. What's what's considered early for the starting pitcher? I think it's just whenever the pitcher goes yeah, out, the he DH is, is out. The DH is out. Oh my god, that would be awesome. So what was the better to forget it? Sorry, better that one I love it. for the Cardinals. We will yeah. see. We should, we should make oh, that very clear. God, yeah. That would be a rule that would impact the Cardinals as much as just about any team in Major League Baseball yeah, but because I think of the start, number of options that they have. But I think teams start focusing on getting more innings out of their pitchers, which would be awesome. Yeah, better to forget it. I don't know it. that it would. I think it would just mean that they have more depth hey, on the bench. I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. Okay, yeah. better to forget it. One of these three is implemented. In the next three years. I'm going to bet it, and I think that it's the one that we don't want. I think it's going to be the disengagement rule. I think they're going to continue oh. going down that path. And I know that's not a popular opinion, oh. but I think that is the one that is the easiest to implement, that is the easiest to bring into the game. I don't want that to be a part of Major League Baseball, but I think that will be the next one that they potentially implement in the sport. So I would say bet it, and I think it's that one. I would too, and I would say it's the designated runner because I think that gives roles to guys who can't get signed elsewhere like i saw somebody tweet out that the uh, story and used a uh, a billy hamilton gif billy hamilton's probably thinking like oh man it's my time to get back into the major leagues but I, I i would say it's the designated runner i i will bet this and i think it's both the designated runner and the double hook i i think the double hook 
And we're, I'm seeing text now on the text line where two people have said different numbers. Maybe it's worth they go less than six innings. I'll have to read Stark's article. I just saw the tweet, and I was going off of what I've heard about the double hook before. I, I think it's going to be both. I, I don't think Major League Baseball would test the double hook without having a purpose. And Theo Epstein was on the Starkville podcast two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and he seems very much an advocate for getting innings from starters again. And I think it would just be fun to see old school NL baseball back in as well if you don't have a starter that goes deep. And then I, I, I think the pinch runner runs one as well that they're going to look at because this doesn't happen by accident. I don't like the one disengagement rule, and I think the players would push back and block that because – I think that's too few of disengagements. I haven't really seen people use the two that often, but I, I don't want to see it just get cut down to one. I just think it's unnecessary to do Agreed. that. Um, and I, I think we will see more of that in the postseason. As the stakes get higher, I think that you'll start seeing the importance of being able to disengage because it's just a, it's a moment to cl- clear your mind. I, there have been a couple of moments this year for the Cardinals where it's like, man, this this game's moving really quickly, and then you'll see like two strikes hitter will take their time out there and they'll like just take 10 seconds to to get themselves back on track i do think it's important to be able to have that in the game um so i i would not want to do that guys bet it or forget it we finished the year with nolan gorman being the third best hitter third most reliable hitter on this team forget it wilson Contreras will be the third guy i would say nolan gorman will be the fourth guy and then I can't believe I'm saying this, but Alec Burleson might be your fifth guy, <laughs> which might not signify good for the offense if those are the five guys. But uh, I, I believe Wilson Contreras will be not the MV3 comparison, but that third piece when you're talking Goldie Arenado and Wilson Contreras. I, I, I'm going to bet this. I, I think Gorman could finish as the third best hitter on this team and, and I, I'm not just saying that because I predict earlier he'd be an all-star uh, I'm saying that because I, I think he's got the tools when you look at Contreras throughout his career there are some seasons that he hits for average but most of the time he kind of sits around that 250 or lower mark and I, I think with Gorman I think what you've seen this year is the adjustment he's made he's done a better job of recognizing pitches I think he's going to hit for more average, and he's also got more power than what I think Wilson Contreras has. So I, I think he's going to hit for a better average, and I think he's going to slug better than Wilson Contreras. So I, I think he's going to be the third best, and I think Contreras will be fourth. So I I compared this Cardinals team to the 2013 offense. In the 2014. I think the 13 one is a better comparison offensively. Oh, someone's cherry-picking. Can he be for you this year what – Matt Adams was for you in half of the season in 2013. Adams that year was a 285 hitter with a 500 slugging percentage. He finished with 17 home runs and 50 RBIs. He did that in 100 games. So that was basically half a season for Matt Adams. Is that essentially what the role that Nolan Gorman is filling? Or is it even more than that? I would say that's his role. I think that's a perfect comp. I mean, I mean, I've said that Alec Burleson looks more like a Matt Adams just in terms of the batter's box, but I think the role on that team, I would go that route. That was the third best OPS plus on that team behind Matt Carpenter and, and uh, Matt Holiday. And what was it at again? In terms of? His OPS plus. Uh, 130. See, I think Gorman, maybe I'm just getting in over my skis here. We're getting excited. I, I, mean, I, think, it, I think Gorman's got better tools than what Matt Adams had. Oh, I, I agree. I think his potential is way it, higher than Matt Adams but it's gonna, long term. it's going to dip. I, I mean, like, this is not going to I sustain. I, I, I mean, he's not going to hit whatever he's at now, like 340. But 
I, I don't think his dip is going to be as bad as we think because I, I think he's been here. He's seen the adjustment. I think he's going to make that adjustment on the fly. Remember last year when he came up, I think he started off well. There was an adjustment, and then he got rid of, I want to say it was the leg kick or the mm-hmm. leg tap. Yep. So he's shown an ability to adjust quickly. I, I I would, if you told me I could like press a button and I would just press my luck rather than just sign up for that, I would. I, I think Gorman can be better for the Cardinals than what Matt Adams was on that team. Alex, what do you got for better to forget it? Better to forget it, boys. By this time next month, there will be three new faces in the bullpen for the Cardinals that are not there right now. Does Woodford how, count or no? I was about to say, how, how does Woodford play into this? Does he count? I feel like he would be a yeah, new face, I, right? I, I think that's a new face because your rotation, a bullpen. Better. Wilking Rodriguez, yep. Jake Woodford. And then somebody else. Yep. Jake I'm going to bet this one too. I, I Not Jake Walsh. Stop trying to make Jake Walsh work. He has no out of run yet. How many walks? We don't have to bring Let's that up. Let's put that in the bullpen. I think Guillermo uh, Zuniga is the guy. He's been electric. I think JoJo could be the guy, yeah, too. That's I what mean, I was thinking. What did I say? He has 11 strikeouts in like four innings. Like, he's been awesome. I mean, AAA. I think I would revamp that lefty side other than Zach Thompson in that bullpen right now. Can and I JoJo would follow be. follow up on yours? There are no follow ups allowed. T Bone, what do you got? I'll take the Better to forget it. Jordan Hicks is not on the roster when those moves happen. Bet I was, it. I bet it because I was under the assumption that it'll be him, it will be Henesis Cabrera. And it will be Andre Palante will be the three that will be out of that bullpen. I, I would, I would one, I would bet the Hicks one. I still think I'm going to bet three relievers. I, I don't know how they view Cabrera because like he is really good at left against lefties. And I think there are spots where you can use but him. That but that makes role? a good point. When Packy returns. Yeah, but I don't know how far away Packy is yep. from coming back. Um, because you're right. I mean, that that's a good point. But I, I think there's still a role for Cabrera. And I think the Cardinals see that. But to BK's point earlier, if you know he can't get right-handers out, well, forget about the lefties that we've got in our lineup. Unless it's like I'm trying, like Freddie Freeman, for example. Sure. The Dodgers aren't pinch hitting for him. So maybe that's his role. You bring him in. Hopefully there's two really good lefties that aren't going to get pinch hit for. And you just cross your fingers that he gets that right-hander in between them. And, and then if that's the case. So I think there's still a role for Cabrera. He's the guy I just don't know how they view. Yeah, I, I would prefer to have... I, I think the other guy that we're not talking about enough here probably is... Uh, Jake Woodford. Woodford could be a guy that's sent down to the minors in this scenario, and they keep him stretched out so that way he can be that sixth starter for them if they end up needing him later on the season. But if Libertor keeps pitching this way, maybe they decide not to do that, and they say, Woodford, like, your role here is going to be as a bullpen arm. Or maybe he ends up getting traded. Like, there's a lot of outs here for the Cardinals. Most of them end up being helpful things for them. Did but... you just casually trade somebody? No, I'm just saying, like, if you've got... Thompson, or if, if you don't want to use a long reliever, which Ollie has been hesitant to do, and honestly, I agree with his philosophy on that. And you think that he's going to be like seventh or eighth in line, potentially, in terms of your starting rotation depth. If another team values him as a fifth starter, he's probably better for you to trade than he is for you just to keep him down in AAA as a depth option for you. It's That is... One of the options for them this year. Coming up next, the Blues were called out by a player on the team for a lack of professionalism. That is a damning quote. What does that mean? How did they get that professionalism back in the locker room? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. So we know that this blue season didn't go as expected, but I didn't expect to hear the players called out for a lack of professionalism, especially by one of their teammates. That's what happened over the weekend. Take a listen to Justin Falk. I know what guys do and what guys go through to, to be in this position. You don't get in this league by not working hard. Uh, you don't sustain yourself by not working hard off the ice. There's a lot that goes into it. I mean, it might look that way, but being a, I say that by being a pro and carrying yourself, there's a ton of things that go into that. It's not just showing up and working hard in the gym. It's It could be anything. I mean, it, there's so many facets that, that go into that and, and what it takes to get in this locker room and, and be an NHL hockey player. So um, I would say, yeah, it's an oversimplification. Um, and I'm not trying to muddy it up or make it more complicated than it is, but... Um, I, I guess that sometimes comes to be a vague term. When you call out your teammates for a lack of professionalism and a lack of work ethic, which is basically what happened over the weekend when Justin Falk took the stand, and I don't think he was like pointing fingers. I think he was just saying like, hey, something that we need to address. We got to get better in this regard. And it it was very clear when listening to Justin Falk, when listening to Braden Shin, when listening to Doug Armstrong, and when listening to Craig Berube, This team had a disconnect from day one. It wasn't going to work. And they kind of knew it early on in the season. There were moments where it looked like, hey, maybe this can get corrected. But they kind of knew pretty early on that something was wrong, that something wasn't right there. Alex, how does that get corrected? I think the start is exactly what happened with Justin Falk by saying there's a lack of professionalism in this room and missing the playoffs to me is the perfect start because I mentioned this earlier, like it does benefit Kyrou and Thomas, I believe of missing the playoffs because not only have they only known playoffs since they've been a St. Louis blue, but you got to think it's going to stick in their crawl of watching guys like Jason Robertson and some of these young players go on to have success in the playoffs while they're sitting at home. Because if it is the, you know, mindset of wanting those clips on social media, well, you don't got any for the next six months because you're going to be in the off season watching it. Like last year you were in the playoffs and you weren't a good team, but you found ways to make it work and you beat Minnesota and then you nearly ran it with Colorado. Now you don't have that excuse to fall back on, but you know, Justin Falk saying it, I think is the, the perfect person to be saying it. Because if you listen to him at the beginning, he said, I know what this looks like because he lived it with Carolina. Like his first five seasons in Carolina, they not only missed the playoffs, but they were a laughing stock of the Metro division. They were seventh place, eighth place, sixth place, seventh place, sixth place. The year, the final year he was there was the year that they made the playoffs and they got swept by the Boston Bruins in the second round. So he understands it. So now this carries over into the offseason, and I would almost guarantee you guys like Justin Falk and Braden Shane are going to be checking in with all of these guys, making sure that there's a lot of work to be had in the offseason of working on certain things and dieting correctly so that when you come to training camp, there's no days off. And then the biggest effect that this is going to come into place is every game or every night that there's not a game, every practice the professionalism from Justin Falk's words that he just used is going to come to showing up on the ice, whether it's an optional, whether it's a regular one, unless you're (laughs) severely injured, 
The professionalism starts with making sure you're out there every single day practicing like Ryan O'Reilly was, like Alex Petrangelo was, like David Perron was. That's how you, like Braden Shen has been. That's the culture, and that's the professionalism. There were some skates this year, optionals, that we would say behind the scenes, a little surprise X, Y, and Z aren't there. Like, and this was midway through the season before it was very clear. Like this, this was before they were just kind of finishing out the year, right? Like that. If it's late March, early April, and you're hosting a yeah, like you, you know what the season is at this point. We're all just showing up to the rink, kind of going through the motions, right? I get it, but this was like January, February. It's clear where the season's going, but you're not eliminated. And there were some moments where I was like, why isn't that guy there? Specifically talking about like Thomas and Cairo. There were moments where you just didn't understand why some of the decisions were being made that were. And so when I hear stuff like this, I do wonder, like, it's obvious that the players have to take initiative here. But Alex, there's also a spotlight now on Barubi and Army to make sure this thing gets corrected. You've made the changes on the coaching staff. You've eliminated two guys from the staff that like Tavish is, is was new this year, but Mike Van Ryan was a part of this staff when things were going well. You got to hire the right guys for those spots, and Craig Burby needs to put them in position to succeed. I think Burby's a really good coach. I think he will be able to get this thing back on track. But if it doesn't, it makes you wonder, like, what's going on there? Doug Armstrong, he just talked with us yesterday about what his process is going to be this offseason to make sure the correct leadership is in place, to make sure that the culture gets back on track. Well, if that's going to be his task this offseason, then we should evaluate him accordingly. So that that is one thing that we will be watching for next year for both of them, but for the team at large. Yeah, I think the spotlight starts with Doug Armstrong now with the offseason and how you approach it. The draft is going to be a significant area and then the spotlight does go on Craig Berube. And I mean, I have the, been the biggest advocate for Craig Berube that people scream and say, well, he needs to be fired because he can't coach these guys. I think that's a dumb process because somebody else will pick him up and he'll oh. have success elsewhere. But Craig Berube mentioning that he's got to improve how to gain the ears of these younger players is going to be pivotal for this team. Because if you've got the Bulldukes and Snuggeroods and Zachary Deans and the Jake Neighbors and whomever you draft in this upcoming draft, these are going to be core pieces just like Robert Thomas and Jordan Kairou are. And then the Scott Perunovics that are going to be stepping into some roles for you next season. If he can't find a way to motivate that young group of players, then yeah, we're going to be talking about finding another coach who can do that because that's how teams work. I don't believe that to be false that he can't because he's done it in the minors with guys but the spotlight is going to be on him not so much this season to where if they underperform this season then you fire Craig Berube I think this is going to be a two to three year thing with Craig Berube by the end of his contract that final year that he's the head coach under contract if there are not signs of progress for guys like Cairo and Thomas and neighbors and these younger players if they're getting a shot then the spotlight's absolutely going to be warranted on them in the focus of the blue struggles. Yeah, I, I think most of the spotlight's on Craig Berube, and I, I don't disagree that it's on Doug Armstrong, because I think it is. I, I think for Army, it's the draft, as you mentioned, and it's how do you retool this defensive court. That's just not something Craig Berube can do. That comes from the front office. But I, I think for Berube, it is what you're talking about with how do you how does he get the year of the younger players. And Kyrou and Thomas, we've talked about it. We feel like those are the guys that are going to propel the next uh, window for the St. Louis Blues. But the other one for me, and it ties into that, was when Doug Armstrong had a comment over the weekend and said, you know, I would watch our practices and it just didn't look like practice. They looked lackadaisical. 
Yes, that's on the players, but that's also on the head coach. And, and that is something that I, I, I do think Craig Berube's seat is a little warmer than what we have kind of let on. I, I do think if they are underperforming again next year, I, I do think there is a chance that you see a change up at the top. And I'm not advocating for that. I, I think Craig Berube's a hell of a coach. But if we're going to talk about a damning comment of Justin Falk saying, yeah, there's not a lot of professionalism here in this locker room, we also have to address the elephant in the room of Doug Armstrong going, the practices were pretty lackadaisical, and the guy that's running those practices was the head coach. And I, I thought that was a very alarming quote from Doug Armstrong, and that's why I think there's more, much more spotlight on Craig Bruby and how he coaches this team next season. It's interesting, though, because I, I heard that same comment, and I thought the same thing, like, well, the guy who's running... But if you go to practices, like, Berube is barking at these guys a lot, and maybe that is the coaching style of, like, you got to figure out how to get the ears of these younger players, because, as Doug said, you know, my father's way that I learned was getting slapped upside the head and said, deal with it. That's not the way that you're going to approach it anymore. So it all goes back to these younger players and how Berube and Armstrong can affect these guys in a positive sense. But the start is one of your leaders, which again, like people ask the leadership core, like Joey has talked about it. Craig Berube after games grabs Falk, Pareko, Shen, and uh, there's one more forward that he grabs that I'm completely blanking on right now. Sod. No, not Sod. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. It doesn't matter. But there's four guys that he grabs and he talks to him and says, what's the issue here? And those are the guys that they're talking to. So as much as the spotlight's on them, it's going to be very intriguing to see how these players go about their day-to-day business in a regular season. Coming up next, we'll let the rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. I'm going to give you a couple of records, all right? Six and ten. That is where the Philadelphia Phillies stand right now. I knew they were bad. Overrated. Eight and ten. That is where the San Diego Padres are at right now. Eight and nine. That is where the Houston Astros stand at this current point in the season. The reason I bring those up is because I think those teams are going to be pretty good. I think eventually they're going to get whatever it is that's going wrong right now. They're going to get that figured out. I feel the same way about the Cardinals. I think they're going to be okay. I feel better about the starting pitching right now than I did this time last week. Alex, the problem for me, though, is that while I feel like this is going to get better, it is frustrating to watch the same thing over and over and over again. I can look at the numbers that I trust that tell me The Cardinals are so good when runners are not in scoring position that what's happening right now with the runners in scoring position is not real. And yet, as I watch it at at night, I get unbelievably frustrated watching them not able to drive in these runs. They are 15 for 84 with runners in scoring position this year in their 10 losses. They have lost 76 men left them on base in those 10 losses. You're averaging basically eight runners left on base and a 178 batting average in those spots. That 
cannot continue. Eventually, this team is going to have to start driving in those runs. Tonight is a good opportunity to do so. You're going up against a fireballer, a guy that is uh, very slight in frame, but he is also wildly talented. So far this year, Dre Jameson has a 1.5 ERA. He's pretty oh, good. That bodes well for this Cardinals offense. Yeah, uh, and you also haven't seen him. So, oh, yeah. um, Is he a lefty? No, no, he's a righty, oh, okay. which well, that at makes least... it even worse Yeah, uh, with this current collection of players that the Cardinals have. So he's, he's got really good stuff. He's super talented. He's a young guy. I will be very curious to see how this lineup looks tonight against a pitcher as talented as him. Yep. To me, it all comes down to I'm not even worried about the pitching side of it anymore. I'm more worried about this offense because I can sit here and say, like, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. I'm not sure when it's going to get better, but it needs to be sooner rather than later because you keep digging yourself this hole. It might be a massive one for you to come out of. Yeah, we've talked about it. You know, the pitching staff, is it great? No, but it is starting to stabilize. And what you need to do is while the pitching staff starts to stabilize, the offense needs to start driving in these runs so it doesn't become a year in which it's just whack-a-mole where one problem pops up while one thing is going great and then they just switch positions. Everything needs to kind of stabilize at the same time. And I think they're getting close to that. But we will see. Tonight's going to be a tough test against this rookie. And, hey, if not, they should beat Mad Bum tomorrow. Uh, Lisa says, we're giving the Cardinals a free pass. We need to hold the Cardinals accountable. The fast lane is coming up Stalter's next. Stalter's your guy. They will the hold the Cardinals accountable. I know. Stalter's Stalter, your guy. I bet you Stalter's furious. Especially that Jack Flaherty came out of the game in the seventh inning last night. He's going to hold Ollie Marmol accountable for that. He's going to hold the offense accountable for them being 7-10 and 10 at this point in the season. I bet you he doesn't have the gumption yeah. to talk about this pitching staff, though. How about coming up next? We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.